Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the project accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself in the past, suffering from partial amnesia and facing a mirror image that was not his own. Fortunately, contact with his own time was maintained through brainwave transmissions with Al, the project observer, who appeared in the form of a hologram that only Dr. Beckett can see and hear. Trapped in the past, Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, putting things right that once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 19, A Portrait for Troy. Did you hear him? Oh boy. Julian, you must have heard him. I don't think so. But he kept calling my name over and over again. Troyan! Troyan! Well, there, there is something. How can that be? Julian's been dead for three years. Al, I think I'm... I think this Dr. Mintz might be driving her over the edge with all this mumbo-jumbo. This Tim Mintz is legit as they come. Besides, I think he's crazy about her. I just came from the waiting room. All he can worry about is Troyan. And for good reason. Because in two days, she's gonna drown in the same lake that her husband did three years ago. Julian was in the rowboat posing for the painting. But that day after ten minutes, he was bored. Before I realized it, he was in the lake. He was a superb swimmer. By the time I realized anything was actually wrong, it was too late. If I were you, man, I would pack up my little Ouija board and be gone by dawn. But the painting, why are we together under the lake? Because that's where I need you, sis. I really thought I could quietly drive you to the funny farm, but I see that's not gonna happen. You see, I got this IOU to these bad dudes in Vegas, and now, I gotta kill my sister. Talk about your bad days. Hello and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. My name's Albie. And I'm Heather. And today we are talking about the 11th episode of Season 2, A Portrait for Troyan. We have a great show for you today. We have an interview with Carolyn Seymour, who played Mrs. Stoltz in this episode. The creepy creeper. Yeah, she had a creepy face going on. She looked almost ghostly. Almost. So I'm really excited for everybody to hear that, finally. We recorded that a few weeks back, but we held on to it for this episode. So it's going to be a great show. Heather, what did you think of A Portrait for Troyan? It was kind of a weird episode for Quantum Leap, but I liked it in the sense that it was different. I know where you stand as far as ghosts and all that supernatural stuff. Do you? I do. Okay. But... It was pretty creepy. The The painting thing was weird and there was lots of water. <laughs> I have to say, I think there might have been a leaky pipe above those paintings because there's no way they could be dripping water that much for that long. Right. Like, I understand if it was dripping when it first came out of the water, but the paintings were constantly being rained on. 
I think they had a sprinkler on it or a hose, like a guy on the side with a hose, and they just filmed, you know, like two minutes of it, and they just kept putting it back in the episode. Yeah. But in-universe, Troyan's got to be sleeping. Then Jimmy comes in, throws a bucket of water on it, and makes some wet footprints. It'll dry out, but no. So every time she looks away, Jimmy throws water on it, right? He was pretty sly in this, because if he got caught, like, sneaking up next to her bed, all would have been lost. So it's just weird that he would have even done that. I have a theory that maybe he was drugging her or something. Well, yeah, that would make sense. Possibly, because how did he do all these shenanigans without getting caught? And why was Miss Stoltz in on it? I don't understand her motivations. Hayden talks more about that later in his segment, but I was puzzled the whole time. Is she a good guy? Is she a bad guy? Why is she there? Well, I figured she was the red herring, but when she locked the door, I was like, I don't understand why... Like, I know she's just an angry lady. <laughs> <laughs> like, she has some anger issues and she's not really the happiest person ever. But why Why would you want Troyan down there, Misery Loves Company? I don't know. Well, if you're a ghost and you had to be a housekeeper and really you weren't getting paid, I, you know, was she getting paid? I'm assuming. Direct deposit? I, not in the 70s. Well, I don't think it was a very long job because uh. they mentioned... In the beginning of the episode, when Dr. Mintz and Troyan walk inside and they're all wet and Miss Stoltz is angry at them, she said that she hasn't had the fireplace cleaned in three years. So it seems like they just came back to this house since Julian's death. Good observation. I never picked up on that. I didn't see it the first time I watched it, but the second time I watched it, it seemed to me that they were gone and came back. So obviously, if they had just came back to the house... And she just hired her as a housekeeper, then maybe they haven't gone through a pay cycle yet. All right. And she was kind of frazzled, so she didn't think to ask for, like, social security number or something. Yeah, I I guess. Two forms of ID. Well, she was the only one who would take the job. Original birth certificate. Probably not. (laughs) 70s. Back then you were like, yeah, you're hired, kid. What's your name? Well, she was Pennsylvania Dutch Amish, so maybe she didn't expect all that information from her. Mennonite. So hopefully we have some stuff to talk about. Oh, yeah, I have lots to talk about with this episode. Good, good, good. Me too. After the episode recap. This is season two, episode 11, A Portrait for Troyan. Original broadcast date, December 13th, 1989. Teleplay by Donald P. Belisario and Scott Shepard. Story by John Hill and Scott Shepard. Directed by Michael Zinberg. In one of the creepiest scenarios to end up in, Sam has leapt into the middle of a cemetery, in the middle of the night, holding a flashlight, with dogs howling, just as a huge thunderstorm is about to start. He is summoned by a beautiful woman into the Claridge Mausoleum. She claims to be hearing her husband, who has been dead for three years, calling her name Troyan over and over again. She tells Sam to look at a piece of machinery, believing that its output shows his voice prints. It's February 7th, 1971, and Sam has leapt into Dr. Timothy Mintz, a parapsychologist whom Troyan Claridge has hired to help prove that her husband, Julian, is haunting her. When Sam and Troyan return to Claridge Manor, which Troyan had inherited from her husband, they are soaking wet from the storm. Sam received a cold welcome from Troyan's housekeeper, Miss Stoltz, and Troyan's brother, Jimmy. Jimmy tells Troyan that she's wasting her time and money. Julian is dead and not coming back. But Troyan is adamant that she has been hearing him and now has proof. When Troyan leaves to warm up with a hot bath, Jimmy then rips into Sam, believing his host to be a quack, only in it for the money and not caring about Troyan's mental state. She had a nervous breakdown after Julian died, 
which is why he has power of attorney over her. Miss Stoltz returns with drinks for Sam and Troyan. Jimmy takes Troyan's drink to her, and Miss Stoltz tells Sam that he is expected in town the next day to pick up newspaper clippings he requested from Mrs. Little, who works at the local newspaper. Sam assumes Miss Stoltz changed the arrangements because of the storm, but Miss Stoltz completely freaks out at Al, who has just arrived, when she looks directly at him and says it wasn't because of the storm, but because strangers aren't welcome. Al believes Miss Stoltz can see him and tells Sam to be careful around her. He also informs Sam that he is there to prevent Troyan, a successful artist and illustrator of the novels her husband had written, from drowning in the same lake her husband did, two days from now. Sam tells Al that he thinks Timothy's work might be sending Troyan over the edge, but Al, who wholeheartedly believes in ghosts, tells Sam that Timothy's work is legitimate, and also that Timothy wouldn't do anything to hurt Troyan since he is crazy about her. In her room, Troyan is woken from her sleep from hearing Julian's voice calling to her again. She is startled when she sees wet footprints leading from her bed, and she follows them to Julian's study. A blood-curdling scream from Troyan prompts Sam and Jimmy to run to her aid. She's in tears when they arrive, because a painting of hers, which she had destroyed three years earlier by throwing into the lake after Julian died, has returned, completely intact. The next day, Troyan is reminiscing about Julian with Sam. On the day of his death, Julian had been posing on a rowboat in the lake for Troyan to paint. He'd gotten bored and started messing around, falling into the lake. By the time Troyan realized that Julian was drowning, it was too late, and being unable to swim herself, there was nothing she could do to help. She says she only ever hears Julian's voice in and around the Claridge estate, and wishes that she could see him, to tell him how much she loves him and misses him, and to apologize for breaking her promise that they would grow old together. Sam comforts Troyan, but being unable to bear the thought of Julian down there in the cold, she nearly passes out. Sam takes her back to the house, and then revisits the mausoleum, trying to make sense of everything that is going on. Al reluctantly joins him, even though he is spooked out by the dead bodies and ghosts. He believes that the entire Claridge estate has been haunted since Nathaniel Claridge found out that his wife Priscilla and their butler had been having an affair, and as revenge, drowned them in the same lake Julian had drowned in over a hundred years later. Sam, however, insists there must be a logical explanation behind everything that is going on, such as somebody, probably Miss Stoltz or Jimmy, trying to drive Troyan insane. They are joined by Jimmy, who again insults Timothy's work, and everyone is shocked to find out that he can hear Al, prompting Al to leave. Later, Troyan again hears Julian calling to her, so she rushes to the mausoleum and tries desperately to find out what he wants. The mausoleum starts to violently shake, making her think that they want to kill her, but it is really just an earthquake. Sam saves Troyan, and they laugh it off. Back at the house, Jimmy is trying to fix an old television set. When asked if it had been working before the earthquake, Miss Stoltz reveals she doesn't know as she doesn't watch television. Some teasing from Sam prompts her to leave, and Sam asks Troyan where she found her. It turns out that when Troyan had advertised for a housekeeper after Julian's death, Miss Stoltz was the only applicant, having worked there previously. Happy that someone was willing to stay there, Troyan hired her and reveals that Miss Stoltz is a good woman once you get past her melodramatic attitude. Jimmy fixes the TV, and Troyan praises him and how much of a genius he has always been with electronics, joking that he should invent a machine that detects earthquakes. Sam realizes that Timothy's machinery detecting shifts in electromagnetic energy had actually already done this, the output from the previous night being the detection of the earthquake. Now realizing how sophisticated Timothy's equipment is, Sam returns to the mausoleum to use the equipment to try to help find out the truth. 
When Al reappears, he realizes that the machinery picks up brainwave transmissions, and so it was picking up Al, making it possible for others to hear him. It also picked up Sam's leap the night before. At the same time, Troyan is in Julian's study, crying and trying to make sense of everything. She'd been upset by the revelation that the machinery hadn't picked up Julian's voice, as they'd already predicted. Sam and Al modify Tim's machine so that it can pick up low-voltage battery emissions and use it to locate a tape recorder that had been hidden in a crypt. Playing it, they are unable to hear anything, but dogs start howling. They realize it must be playing a voice that was recorded in such a high frequency that only dogs and some people, mainly women, would be able to hear. Realizing that it would take an electronic genius to pull this off, it had to be Jimmy, who was trying to drive Troy and insane. They also realize that since it is on a remote control, when they played it, it would have started playing any other tape recorders that were left lying around. As a result, Troyan hearing Julian's voice again has another look at the painting and realizes that she has been added to it, dead at the bottom of the lake with Julian. Troyan rushes to the lake to find out what Julian wants, and Al centers in on her. Since another of Tim's machines that can pick up his voice was there, Al talks to Troyan, pretending to be Julian, and tries to tell her to live and to go back home. She is confused, because from the painting, it appeared that Julian wanted her to join him, and at the same time, Jimmy arrives and tells Troyan that was because it's what he needed her to do. He'd been trying to drive her insane to get power of attorney by making her hear voices and haunt her with the painting, but now that she was getting better, he needed to kill her so he'd inherit all her money. He had a lot of gambling debts to pay off. Al stalls him by pretending to be Julian's ghost, but Jimmy sees through it and throws the machinery into the lake followed by Troyan. Sam runs onto the pier and tackles Jimmy into the lake. Jimmy doesn't come back up, and Al helps Sam find Troyan and bring her to the surface, saving her life. After they have reported Jimmy's death, the lake is surrounded by police and reporters. Troyan doesn't think she can handle the fact that her brother had been trying to drive her insane and kill her, but Sam tells her that Jimmy was sick and that she's a survivor. The police had been unable to find Jimmy's body, but did find three others, believing that the earthquake must have shaken them loose. Due to the freezing cold temperatures of the lake, they are perfectly preserved. Troyan identifies one of them as her husband, and Mrs. Little, from the newspaper, guesses that from their clothing, which looked to be over 100 years old, that the other two were Priscilla Claridge and her butler. When Troyan suggests having Miss Stoltz bring them some hot drinks, Mrs. Little says it's quite a coincidence that Troyan's housekeeper's name is Stoltz, as Priscilla Claridge's maiden name was also Stoltz. Sam and Troyan look at the other two bodies, and Priscilla's dead body is the spitting image of the housekeeper. From an upstairs window where she had been watching, Miss Stoltz fades away. As Mrs. Little comments that Sam looks like he had just seen a ghost, Sam leaps. Thank you for that episode recap, Heather. That one was written by Hayden. Thank you very much, Hayden. He's uh, pretty good at that. Yeah, he's a good writer. I like him. I think I might collaborate with him in the future. Hint, hint. I think we'll keep him on board the Quantum Leap podcast. He's a valued member of our crew, as they all are. So, one thing about this episode. I feel really bad for Robert Torty. Because of his hair? Well, that's another issue entirely. But when he tells people, yes, I was on Quantum Leap, I played Jimmy. And they're like... You really don't look like Jimmy from Quantum Leap. Yeah, when I wrote down his name when I was taking notes, I was like, really? That's the name they picked? What, two episodes later? Which... And the episode was named Jimmy. Right. They needed a baby name book or something. 
It might have been some be more names. Well, they came up with Troyan. Which is not like a John Smith kind of name. But if your daughter's name is Troyan and your son's name is like John or Jim, really? Like you were creative with one half of your children. I like people that are named John. No, I'm not saying that that's an insult at all. I'm just saying like. So anyway, the point I'm trying to make is they reuse the name Jimmy when they actually named the episode Jimmy, Jimmy. You just said Jimmy way too many times. Which is my point. Right. How many other names are there? They should have used a different name. But am I right that this one was supposed to be like a season one? Was it this one that was supposed to be in season one? That's one of the little bits of trivia that originally it was going to be a season one episode, but due to rewrites and delays, they had to push it back. So maybe it wasn't, it was supposed to come before Jimmy. But in production, they should think, you know, we just did an episode called Jimmy. I know. Like, sorry, there's no more names. (laughs) Uh, Maybe I'm being nitpicky. But also, yes, I feel bad about his hair. I, oh, I, it the is, hair in this episode. It is a period piece, and it takes place in 1971. So there should be bad hair. But the bad hair is so bad that it's very distracting. Yeah, like I wasn't as distracted by the clothes or the fact that she had like a lace white nightgown on every single night. Whatever. But the hair was just big frizzball hair mullets and just... Ugh. It was distracting. It was a bad time in the 70s. <laughs> What about the story of this episode? What are your thoughts on the story? I'm kind of glad that they pleased both the skeptics and the believers with this episode, if that makes sense. Like they made a reason, a logical reason for why everything was happening. But then they threw the creepy Miss Stoltz thing in there, too. So I think it pleased both the skeptics and the believers. Or made both of them angry, depending on how you look at it. Because the skeptics would be like, really? And the believers would be like... No, they would be pleased because there was really a ghost, so. Right. Well, I don't necessarily think that there's ghosts in my house. Freaks me out when my daughter waves to, like, the wall and says, pup up. Freaks me out because she's never met her grandfather, so freaks me out. But besides that, I don't actually think that, like, he's here. He could be, and that would be kind of cool. But when I'm watching a TV show, it doesn't bother me. You know what I'm saying? Like, if some guy knocked on my door and said, hey, I think there's ghosts in your house, I'd be like, hit the road, buddy. But when I'm watching it on TV, I'm okay. I watch Harry Potter and I could watch Percy Jackson and I can watch stories like that. I don't necessarily think that there's demigods running around New York City, but it's a really good story. I think you have a different point of view on this. No, uh, I can still enjoy a story that has to do with the supernatural or fantasy and not believe in that fantasy or supernatural thing we see many examples i think in quantum leap of a fantasy element to it well i don't really think there's any rules to quantum leap i mean there are but i mean they could really do anything i think the only rule is what's a good story right and they had to do a ghost story and i don't mind it i think i feel like i might talk about this further in a future episode maybe episode 39 perhaps but Very random. I like to think that there's something called a cane in the corner moment, and I'll elaborate on that later. Well, I think later in our feedback, Father Beast mentions it as kind of a Scooby-Doo type of episode. But in Scooby-Doo, there really isn't a ghost. There's just a guy with a rubber mask on. But And and I know that that's kind of a cool thing, because if it was really a ghost, then it wouldn't have been as exciting, because this is kind of like a mystery. We have to figure out why this is happening. And Al's just ready to believe in ghosts. He's like, you know what? No, it's ghosts. Get me out of here. Leap already. (laughs) I'm done with this one. Al seems very superstitious. Yes. Easily swayed. 
Yeah, and he can spot that there's something funky with Miss Stoltz, too. Well, the fact that she looks directly at him freaks him out, and I don't blame him. And that's subtle, and you don't realize that she's looking at Al until her eyes shift to Sam, and you're like, what? Right, and I really didn't catch it the first time I watched it in recent history, but after the first time, I see it every time. Well, yeah, and when she's like, strangers aren't welcome here. Can I say she did really good in this episode? She was awesome. She definitely creeped me out, and that was her purpose, right? Yes, and to be a red herring. Her hair wasn't quite red. So ish. Was it ish? Did it have like a reddish tint to it? Yeah, it like wasn't quite brown. All right. She had good hair in this episode. Yeah, because she wasn't from the 70s. Right. Considering she was at the bottom of a lake, she looked pretty good. Can we talk about that? Now, I'm into cryonics a little bit. Ever since I saw the episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, The Neutral Zone. Is that the one where they find like the three people? Frozen from, I think, the 1990s. And they bring them back to life. So ever since then, I was like, okay, freeze me. Don't burn me. Don't bury me. Freeze me. Of course, it costs a lot of money that I don't have. But ideally, I would like to be frozen and then one day in the future woken up and made to be a slave for the ape people. <laughs> you would be the one guy that wakes up asking for the TV. I'd be like, uh, how do you cut on this year TV? Mm-hmm. Think about it. Waking up a thousand years from now. I want to watch really old television and you could see like the end of every series you're watching. See, I connect with the woman who was, wow, my family's dead and now my kids and all that. Um, yeah, it freaks me out. Yeah, it frees everybody though. But what I'm saying is... What do you think about the validity of the premise that they look like they just died 100 years later at the bottom of a lake? I mean, unless they were literally frozen, I don't see that happening. Well, how else would you just stay at the bottom of a lake unless you were like frozen down there? Oh, see, I was thinking like they were caught up in roots and tree limbs and muck and then the earthquake shook them free. <laughs> shook them free. Sounds shook like them free. <laughs> and our, we'd like to thank our sponsor today, Shook them Free. If you're not sure whether or not you need Shook'em Free, you need to buy Shook'em Free. <laughs> also available in Sugar Free. New Sugar Free, Shook'em Free. I don't even remember my point. <laughs> I remember. So the green sludge that was all over them, like the, I don't even know. I, I think that it would have been weird if, well, I guess we wouldn't be able to recognize Miss Stoltz if they weren't completely frozen or whatever so that that had to just let it work go out. right let it go so let it go that they're not <laughs> that they're not really all right frozen at the bottom of a lake but. right if they were that well preserved i was thinking start cpr you know because people an hour hour and a half can be revived in freezing cold water i don't know about a century but the fact that their feet were still moving and they were breathing and smiling means that maybe cpr would come in handy yeah those were real people they were they <laughs> They were real. Carolyn Seymour talks a little bit about the filming process of this episode. And she mentions the worst part of it was of her having to be made up with that sludge and floating in the lake. I didn't see any shots of her floating in the lake. Right. To me, they look like mannequins. And even the logic of why would you have the person that you're not supposed to know who it is in the lake because you can't show who it is until the later reveal. Why would you want her in the lake? Because people might figure out who it is. So they needed to use either stunt doubles or mannequins or something. Maybe it was a dare or a bet. Maybe she lost a bet. Might have. Hmm. Anyway, I think that that ending where Mrs. Stoltz ended up to be a ghost the whole time was kind of a nice Twilight zone type of ending. Zony. Is that a word? We're making up lots of words today. <laughs> 
But it, it was reminiscent of a Twilight Zone episode where you don't see something and you assume one thing when it's actually another and you don't find out until the end. And for me, it was okay that they did that. And now we have expanded the Quantum Leap world, their universe, to include more fantasy. So ghosts are real. Well, this episode is really a Twilight Zone type of episode, isn't it? I mean, not as extreme as the Twilight Zone episode. I would say yes, it's in that style. Sam even mentions the Twilight Zone in this episode, talking to Carolyn Seymour's character, Mrs. Stoltz. And I found that funny because Carolyn Seymour is actually in an episode of the Twilight Zone, one of the reboot series later on. So a little in-joke, maybe. That's pretty cool. I didn't know she was in both. Can we talk about the fact that the episode opens with freaking Don Quixote again? I am I, Don Quixote. But for real, like I thought I was done. And then the episode opens and he's singing the song again. And I'm like, really? I have to watch this one now, what, four more times or whatever? <laughs> Lord of La Mancha. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it, it does bring it back up, which like is I'm okay just, if you haven't seen it eight times, nine times. Right. But like, didn't I just mention in the last episode how I was so ready to be done with that song? And then we turn on this episode and I'm like, Really? Really? The song, again. So you're done with Man of La Mancha right now? Yes. I think I need a break. Me? I'm trying to wean myself off of it. See, me and Man of La Mancha right now, we're like, when you have a best friend and you end up spending like a week vacation with them, and then after that week vacation, you need like a couple weeks just to have your space. That's where I'm at with Man of La Mancha. Tom Quinn actually commented on my Instagram. I posted a video of my daughter singing on Instagram and it, he commented and said, at least it isn't Don Quixote. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you know what? You want to know what plays at the beginning of a portrait for Troyan? I can't escape it. And he said, after the trauma fades, that we should actually go see the real production of the show because it's worth it. And he said, wipe your mind of the movie. The movie is strange. So, but he said that he's seen high school productions of Man of La Mancha that are better than the movie. So, okay. So there is hope for Man of La Mancha, and we just haven't seen the good of Man of La Mancha yet, I think. My friend Frank, that loves Man of La Mancha, that I mentioned last episode, talking about it, said the Peter O'Toole version, not so good. I was just confused. I had no idea what was happening in that movie. So, But I have an open mind, and okay. I'm willing to, in the future, far from now, I'm willing to revisit Man of La Mancha. What if I put on a one-man production in our living room? Of no. The whole, no. I'll learn the lines and the music. That has been my life for the last two weeks, <laughs> you with the okay. one-man show of So let's Don leave Quixote. Man of La Mancha behind. Right. Okay. I just had to so make that one right last... Right now, we're done. No more. I feel like you're going to sing I really, really want to sing right now. Nope. <laughs> okay. So back to A Portrait for Troyan, which right. was on the typewriter. Was that a book he was writing? What is that? A portrait for Troyan? Because there's paintings and explain that to me a little bit. Do you have any insights on that? They had to work in the title somehow. No. Um. <laughs> yes, they did. And I love when they do that and say it out loud and look at the camera. They're like, yep. But I don't think there's got to be another explanation. Well, I don't know. He didn't write the book yet. So he was writing a book. Or maybe he wrote the book, but we didn't get to see it. Did you notice some of the typewriter keys were dusty and some weren't? Mm. very odd i was waiting for the keyboard to like start and i was like but that wouldn't make any sense me like, too it wasn't a keyboard <laughs> I, <laughs> you know what i mean okay i do but yeah i i thought it was going to be like an old spooky movie where they tie the fishing string to some of the keys and they start yeah. typing yeah it didn't happen but i was expecting it another creepy level is it normal 
to like have a, a cemetery of your family in the backyard because I wouldn't. Not, I'm not superstitious, but like that would freak me out. I know I'm not a fan of dead bodies in my backyard. I don't know. Keep them away from me. I mean, I like them while they're alive, but once they're dead, eh, they creep me out. I agree with you. And I wouldn't want a cemetery in my backyard. But I mean, is that normal for rich people? Like, is that a thing? I'm so confused of that. How do you think they got rich? They saved money because they didn't have to spend all that money. They just bury them in the backyard. But like there's a mausoleum and like a full on graveyard in their backyard. It seemed pretty odd to me. You know, what seemed odd that everybody kept dying and drowning in this lake. Fill it in, drain it out, get your loved ones, bury them in your backyard if you feel like it. But at least, you know, you know where they are. But fill in the lake so people stop dying like this. This is crazy. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Do you think Miss Stoltz was killing everybody? It's a possibility. I really don't know the motivation behind her character. Well, she was married in Claridge. She wasn't a, like, blood Claridge. So she was, what, seeking revenge on their whole family? I just don't know, like, after 100 years. The only thing I could put together in my mind was that Mrs. Stoltz had unfinished business, and that was her body wasn't found. Because it's a very traditional, like, literary device, the ghost is haunting you because nobody has put them to rest, let's say. When Sam leaps in, he's in a graveyard cemetery and we see Troyan. are we supposed to think she's a ghost because she just kind of appears that was so weird to me because she wasn't there and then she was there and he's like oh boy and she has like her arms out and i didn't even think of that really really that did not go through my mind at all the preview for the episode i thought she was the ghost huh, maybe because i had seen it before a long time ago maybe but i thought that she was the ghost like i thought a portrait for Troyan was about Troyan the ghost <laughs> like i thought I don't know. You know, the ending of this episode, the way they did it, she could have been the ghost the whole time. Anybody <laughs> could have been the ghost the whole time. Yeah, right. If Miss Stoltz was a ghost. Yeah. There was no reason to believe that anyone would be a ghost in the episode anyway, so she could have just as well been a ghost. That would have been a weird ending. But if you think back to the beginning of the episode, are you thinking back? Yes. He looks around and he sees the mausoleum and then it goes back to him and then she appears and he goes, oh boy. I could see that because she was wearing like the white robe and it was flowing in the wind and right. kind of creepy looking. Yeah. Right. Weird, right? Very no. weird. I, I assumed that she was the ghost from the preview. <laughs> huh. See, yeah. uh, I'm sure a lot of people get different things out of the uh, same show. Oh, well, yeah. Did you see Don Belisario in this episode? Only because you pointed him out to me. You probably didn't even know what he looked like. It's difficult behind the scenes to know what people look like. Well, I think I've seen a picture of him now, maybe here or there, but I wasn't looking for him to be in the episode. I didn't think they'd both be in the episode. That's pretty cool. It's pretty awesome. And there's actually another producer in the episode too, right? Oh, yeah. He's the butler at the end, maybe. Oh, no. Or the husband. One, of, one of the dead bodies that was moving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of the undead bodies. Ooh, zombies. That was actually the writer and producer, Paul Brown. So it looks like everybody got together to be in this episode and they were like, hey, if Deborah gets to be in this episode, why don't we get to be in this episode? I wonder how that works when you're all playing double roles. <laughs> uh, double paychecks. Is that, is that how it works or they save money? I don't know. I guess it depends on the show and, you know, they pay themselves. So, yeah, I don't know. I've never worked in the television business as far as paychecks go. Me neither. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe someday. Someday. <laughs> Yeah, the bodies at the end still were weird to me because I swear I could see their toes move and their breathing and that was just weird. I guess, like we say in every episode, the low definition small screen, right? Try not to breathe and 
Try not to move your feet, (laughs) just in case it's ever high def. When Jimmy was yelling at Sam when they had just gotten back to the house for the first time, there's this counter that they're standing at, and there's chandeliers on a table. (laughs) Like, things you would see hanging from the ceiling, but there's like three of them lined up on the table. And that is what's on the counter, is huge chandelier-type lights. That's odd. I've never seen a chandelier-type light, because it's obviously not a chandelier if it's sitting on a table. (laughs) Well, unless Mrs. Stoltz had them down to clean them. They were on, like, they were stationary lights working, sitting on a table. I know it's so small (laughs) and pointless, but I just looked at it, and it's just something to look at the next time you watch it, like, that's just weird. Maybe it's a 70s thing. Might be. They might have had huge lamps. One part of the episode I didn't understand until you looked it up was when Mrs. Stoltz was bringing the hot toddies to Sam and Al referenced someone's name and I didn't get it. Oh, oh, oh. Lucrezia Borgia. Borgia, yeah. And uh, I was like, hey, that's one I don't get because that's before my time. Well, according to Wikipedia... If there's only one Lucrezia Borgia, it is rumored that she was in possession of a hollow ring that she used to frequently poison drinks. So I guess that would kind of make sense. So basically, if you're referencing a drink maybe being poisoned, you bring her name up. I've never heard of that before. I don't know. That was a far reference. So now I know how you feel. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Every day of my life. But see, I don't let those things go. I don't just go, eh, I want to know. I got to look that stuff up. Yeah, I just assumed it was a reference I didn't get and you'd explain it to me later. <laughs> Neither one of us got it. Delipi's name in this episode is what? Timothy Mintz. Right, and they call him Tin Mints, and I swear it sounds like Thin Mints sometimes. You were talking about Tin Mints that I, I didn't put two and two together, and I, that's what I thought you said. They were trying to be funny. Tim Mints, what an odd name. We talked about odd names, and that kind of fits in there. <laughs> Well, he was in the waiting room thinking he was abducted by aliens. So he believes in ghosts and aliens and, I guess, hopes for that kind of thing. Well, I think even if, say, he was a charlatan and didn't believe in ghosts and was just out for the money, if you were put in that situation like he was, wouldn't you think maybe you were abducted by aliens? If I had human-like people telling me that it was time travel, probably not. I mean, if you really want to believe that aliens abducted you, that's what you're going to believe, right? Yeah, you're going to look for a plausible explanation, I think. Time travel is just as plausible as being abducted by aliens, I guess. Are they telling him? I would assume they're explaining it to him. So he says, this is where I was, right? You know, I don't know. I mean, if they tell him what's going on, do they go back to the past with the knowledge of that information? So they wouldn't tell him, right? But we saw in... Yeah, because they have to know. But we saw in Double Identity, when the Leapy leaped back in the first part, he didn't know what had happened. See, I thought in the pilot episode that he talked to Tom Stratton in the waiting room to find out where Sam was. Well, I think so, because he does that a lot. Al talks to people in the waiting room, and we find out more and more about that as the series goes on. Oh, so he's asking them questions, but he's not explaining himself. I don't know. That's unclear to me at this point. We're going to get an email that's like, you guys, come on. Don't you know that these are the rules? Please, somebody let us know, because I need like the Quantum Leap rule book. Cardido? Peso mojado. I got the cardido caution. Peso mojado. Why does peso sound like money? I don't know. It's uh, supposed to be floor. Maybe put your money on the floor. You put your money on the floor. What are we talking about? The hardwood floors with the water 
poured all over the place. That looked very dangerous. Troyan could have killed herself just slipping on that. Probably. And walking down wet stairs, probably not safe either. And walking up wet stairs. She walked down and then up again to a different staircase, I'm assuming. I was going to say Jimmy should have thought of that, but he was trying to kill her anyway. Right. But man, he went through a lot of trouble. He must have been really in debt. (laughs) And that's another thing. I think, you know, from Troyan's personality, I think if Jimmy just went to her and said, look, I'm in trouble, I need help. Well, he said that she would have put rules on him and made him do things her way. When he didn't want to do that, he just wanted more money. Or he kills his sister. He said he knew what was right and wrong. He just chose to do the wrong. Now, how was that his sister? Because wasn't Troyan a Claridge by marriage, so... Because she was a wife of Julian Claridge. Now, who was Jimmy related to and how? Well, Jimmy's name is Jimmy Giovanni, so it's her brother. He's staying with her now at the Claridge house because she inherited it, along with the money that he stole from her. Okay, so they're blood-related, or at least they have the same parents in some way. Yeah, that's usually how brother and sister works out. Okay. I was just just curious because it was a little confusing to me. Well, I wasn't sure until I saw the cast list and it said Jimmy Giovanni, which her name is Troyan Giovanni Claridge. So that would be her maiden name. During the episode, they did give us clues of who done it. Oh, yeah. Who was the one doing it? And uh, one of them was when Jimmy was fixing the television after the earthquake, Troyan said he's an electronics genius. So when Sam found the tape recorder player with the walkie-talkie antenna hooked up to it, then right there you connect both of the things together with electronic genius and a remote control, high-frequency audio tape. Yeah, whereas Miss Stoltz has never even watched TV. Right. You can't blame her because TV wasn't invented when she was alive. They also gave us clues about Miss Stoltz being the undead. Uh, what were those? The fact that she doesn't watch TV. <laughs> so if somebody doesn't watch TV, no, they might be no, a ghost. No, okay. paired with mm-hmm. the fact that she uses old phrases like red up the kitchen. What does that mean? I have no idea. I'm, I'm thinking to get ready. Apparently it is Pennsylvania Dutch for clean up. So like red up the room is clean up the room. Red up, red up, everybody do your share. I was thinking like it was short for ready up. Yeah, me too. That's exactly what I thought. It might be. Yeah, but so. even Sam kind of pokes fun at her for saying red up. And her outfit is 100 years old all all on its own. <laughs> I didn't notice that. I guess it's because it's the 70s, so you think, eh, maybe. Well, and she was Pennsylvania Dutch and... An English yeah. accent, so of course she's going to wear that dress. It's one of those things where you don't notice it until you already know. And then, and then when you go back, you're like, oh, okay, that was a clue. So what did you think of the first real mystery in Quantum Leap? It was good. I like when there's different episodes. The last episode was a lighthearted one. This one, definitely not lighthearted, kind of spooky, but I like that they're different. Did you think of it as a mystery as you were watching it? Because I really didn't. To me, it was just a ghost story, maybe. And I didn't catch on that it was actually supposed to be a mystery, and I was supposed to be guessing who did it. Well, I was wondering. I mean, I consider it kind of a mystery because we didn't know, and we find out. Is it bad that the first time I watched this recently which would probably be the second time I watched it in my lifetime, that I just assumed it was Mrs. Stoltz. Not not that she was a ghost, but that she was the one doing it. When she locked the door, that was my assumption. Again, why did she lock the door? I don't know. That really is strange to me. I have to say I liked Deborah Pratt's performance in this episode. 
because she really did look crazy. Like she was being driven crazy by someone, which she her character was. And then at the end, when Jimmy confesses to her, she's caring and compassionate and tries to help him and like tries to understand like she's not angry. She's trying to reason with him. I don't think she was crazy, but I think she thought she might have been crazy because of everything that was going on. And the point where she was almost being driven to the edge, I think Deborah Pratt did a really good job. If you watch her hands, she was kind of doing really strange things with them. Like she didn't know what to do and she maybe was questioning her own reality. Well, I mean, think about it. Even if you did not believe in ghosts, right? If you started hearing things over and over and over again and creepy things started happening to you, I mean, like, really, what what would you think? Me? I'm over analytical, so I would probably try to figure out what the possibilities were. But if I eliminated all those somehow, you know, and I would assume my brother wouldn't be the one messing with me. You would assume that I wouldn't be somebody who would be placing tape recorders or something and setting you up. Well, that's how she would feel about her brother. I mean, her brother loves her and wants to take care of her. At least that's the attitude he's giving off. So that thought doesn't even cross her mind. So, of course, she's being driven crazy. And Deborah Pratt really did do a great job. You brought this up. So, ghosts, yes or no? Do you believe them? Are they real? Do they exist? Your opinion. And remember, just because it's an opinion doesn't make it right or wrong. I do not believe in ghosts. Ah, I agree with you. Did you think I was going to say something different? No, not at all. I wanted to know. I think the idea of it is uh, nice to write stories about. And I think it's uh, one of the things that people tell themselves, maybe, to make themselves feel better about losing a loved one. That creeps me out, though. Yeah, right? In my experience losing someone, I get freaked out by the fact that they might be like around me. Like that thought freaks me out. I don't want to. Sounds like you do believe. No, no, no. No, I mean, like when when my friend passed away when I was 15, I would be like, okay, so if goes to real, she would be here. And that thought freaked me out. Now, I don't I didn't actually think she was around. I was just like the possibility of her being there like that belief freaked me out. So I don't want to believe in <laughs> I don't want to believe that there's dead spirits around me. Why would you want to believe that? Good point. <laughs> it's creepy. Yeah, it'd be uh, just like because if somebody was alive and in your home and standing in a room and not talking to you, you'd be like, could you please leave? Yeah. Well, my mom believes in haunted things like she watches the ghost hunters and that's cool. I've watched the shows and the the shows are pretty cool. She watches the shows and they're good, but I've never believed. They could be really, really creepy, though. But my mom actually believes that there are ghosts living in her house. It's funny you mentioned ghost hunters because my friend, Johnny, he believes in ghosts. He watches ghost hunters all the time. And uh, I did watch one episode with him because he convinced me that it's a good show. It's a good show. But I think if they had really discovered a ghost in the last decade or so, it would make major news beyond entertainment beyond cnn and all that stuff hey ghosts exist the proof that he gave me was they were all in a castle or an old building or something usually usually. (laughs) um but there's a guy with a it looked like an audio recorder that we used to record the podcast something out of ghostbusters there was a woman with him and a voice said you don't belong here and they recorded it and it was on the television and my friend johnny said Neither one of them said that. There's nowhere that voice could have came from because the guy didn't say it and the girl didn't say it. And I told him, there's a cameraman there and a guy with a boom mic. One of those guys said it. <laughs> and he just looked at me and he's like, you know, you realize you just ruined ghost hunters for me. I had no idea there was other people in the room. 
Well, it's an entertainment thing. Right. Like pro wrestling. I love pro wrestling. It's exactly what I was going to say. You can enjoy pro wrestling without thinking about how it's made. Right. I mean, you can enjoy ghost stories. Ghost stories are fun and they're creepy. And when they're in like those isolated areas or the insane asylums that have been closed for 200 years and all the stories of creepy deaths that happen there, man, that is just creepy. I don't, it doesn't matter if you believe in ghosts or not. The pictures are creepy. The video of how the rooms look. Abandoned buildings are creepy on their own. Well, um, I was talking to Beverly Leach from Seabride. She was in our last special. We did an interview with her. If you listen to that, she talks about how the pool area on the Queen Mary is haunted and how it you have weird feelings when you're there. After the interview, I was thinking to myself, maybe when you get a feeling about something like that, to me, it's like when Derek Huff says stage fright and nerves is not real because it's all in your mind. You make it up. You put pressure on yourself about being nervous, let's say, maybe haunted places are like that because you start to think of the history of everything that happened there and your system becomes overwhelmed with the feelings of everything that might have happened there. So you do feel different and it does affect your, maybe your chemicals at the time and you feel strange. Oh yeah. I mean, everybody's gotten that chill before or, you know, you just feel creeped out weird have you ever been in like a dark room and you're watching a scary movie and then all of a sudden every shadow in your room is like the scariest thing ever yes even though you don't actually believe that the monster in the movie exists you're like it might be in that shadow right there right and your your logical brain is saying no that's a hat rack i know there's a hat rack there but the other part of your brain is saying maybe that's not the hat rack maybe there's some creepy guy there well true story the other night i was reading I'm sure you guys have seen these circulate in the internet. The creepy things that kids say. I was reading that on my phone in my dark bedroom trying to go to sleep. Probably not the best idea, but they were really creepy. And I'm just looking around in my dark room going, maybe shouldn't have done that. Because not like I believe in the things that they were talking about, but creepy things just kind of do that to you. I mean, it's like we don't know everything about everything. So that one part of your mind that doubts things <laughs> creeps up and makes you freak out about stuff. Yeah, there's no way to know everything. So there's always the possibility that your understanding of something is wrong. Right. So there's always that possibility in your brain. There's always a possibility that it isn't a hat rack. Now I'm scared. I'm going to take the <laughs> hat rack. I don't even own a hat. Why do I have a hat rack? <laughs> just to creep me out. You know, though, when I think of monsters and hat racks, I just think of Monsters, Inc. and so that makes me feel a little bit better. I think of Howie Mandel. Why? Little Monsters. No. Oh. Fred Savage. No. I think I have seen that. Good movie. Surprisingly. In this episode, Jimmy says, pack up your Ouija board and be gone by dawn. That had me thinking of Evil Dead and little haunted ghost stories there. Have you ever done a Ouija board? I saw the movie. Hmm, I didn't know there was a movie. Pretty good. 80s. My mom had a Ouija board. She's into all that. But I've never actually like done anything with it because... Okay, here's the thing with the Ouija board. Somebody's always pushing it. Right, that somebody (laughs) is me. So if you've ever done a Ouija board with somebody, there's always somebody like me that's going to be doing it. Because if both of you believe it's going to work, it's not going to move because you're waiting for some outside force to do it. There's got to be one... Non-believer in the bunch. In the room, messing with everybody else. That's how it works. I think it's even in the directions. (laughs) Or it's that whole thing where your brain convinces you to feel that it's moving. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how that works. Because like I said, I've never done it before. 
Uh, what were some other creepy things in this episode? I guess the dogs howling. And you know what? I didn't really notice that there was dogs howling that much until we watched the episode with the captions turned on, because I usually do that once throughout the viewing of these, just in case I get something wrong. And like the whole episode, it says dogs howling, dogs howling, dogs howling. Well, that's because the dogs could hear the high-pitched noise. Right. But can't they hear regular sounds too? So if there was a regular tape recording of somebody saying hello. Yeah, but have you ever heard the dog whistles where we can't hear them, but it's to keep like dogs from barking? Yeah, I know of them. Right. So whatever it is, is freaking them out. Oh, so high pitch is not only they can hear it, but it freaks them out. I guess. I don't know. I don't know. See, I don't know. (laughs) Right. But because they can hear it, but they can hear everything else that makes a sound too. Okay, but then why does the high-pitched noise make them stop barking? No idea. Because, you know, they have those stop barking as seen on TV things. Yes. and So it, it bothers them because right. they're like, are you hearing this? I no, can hear like, this. My freaking ears hurt. My eardrums oh, are painful. Probably. Okay. And they said women can hear high-pitched sounds. Women can hear everything. <sighs> they got eyes behind their head. <laughs> we know everything. I don't think so much as women can hear more than men. I think they just pay attention where we don't. Yeah, probably. So Troyan can't swim. Right, that's weird, because her husband, who drowned, can swim. Now, I can't fly, but if someone that I loved was dying, I would think I would try, you know? I think if I couldn't swim because I just didn't get around to taking swimming lessons and somebody was drowning, I think I would try to save them anyway and say, well, you know what? It's time to learn how to swim. You wouldn't just stand there and freak out. Question is, how do you not know how to stay afloat? Like, I understand not knowing how to swim, but like not knowing how to swim as like a two-year-old because they don't understand water and not knowing how to swim as like an adult where you know that you have to move your feet and arms around, right? Like moving your feet and arms is pretty much all you have to do to stay afloat. Well, just not do anything and you float, I think. Uh, I'm I'm not that buoyant. (laughs) Last time I was in a pool, you just kind of relax and you float on the top. But it's how you hold yourself in the water. Right. They were like standing straight up. So of course they were sinking. But I, you know, I remember trying to go down to the bottom of a pool as a kid and you really have to swim down. Right. So. If a kid who doesn't understand water jumps in the pool and like freaks out, I think that's the problem. I think not knowing how to swim is one thing. It's the panic that you get into when you get into the water and don't know how to swim. That's when you take a big gulp of water and the water fills your lungs, and that's when you go down. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not that you don't know how to swim. It's that you freak out. Because if you know how to swim, then you're confident in the water. So if you end up getting dumped in the water, and you don't know how to swim, and you don't know how to react, and you panic because there's water in your lungs, do you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yes. Because I'm trying to figure out, if you just don't know how to swim, you get in the water, and you just move around, and you'll stay afloat. Like, I don't know how to swim. I have some fear of being underwater. This I know. I'm not proud of this. <laughs> and I don't I don't understand the psyche behind this because I'm not afraid of water. But I'm afraid of holding my breath too long. Like I'm afraid. So if I was drowning in the middle of a lake. I would still jump in and save you because I know how to stay afloat. That's you know what, what I'm saying. saying? Like, yeah. But that's my point. My point is, is I don't think it's that she didn't know how to swim. I think that the... F- thought that you don't know how to swim means you can't swim obviously i'm not making sense i was just a little disappointed in troyan as a character for not even trying to save her husband what i'm saying is is like she's scared if you think you don't 
know how to swim, then you're going to sink. If she knew she could swim, she would have jumped in and got him. But if she thought that she was going to sink, why would you want to kill yourself? But she was physically able to do it. Well, but if you're afraid of something, you don't believe that you're physically able to. Aren't you supposed to, in those moments, like, supposed to be able to lift a car off of someone and do all kinds of things? Right, but if somebody fell into a pit of lava, would you be like, let me go save them? No, because logically I would know I would burn up. Right, but that was, I think that's the same kind of logic for someone that believes they can't swim. So So you don't falter for that at all? I don't, because I honestly believe that she would have saved him if she believed she could have. Another point of the mind being a powerful thing. I can go underwater and hold my breath and I will have to come up before I run out of air because I feel like I've run out of oxygen. Doesn't make any sense, but I'm telling you. Quick story. We had an excursion planned (laughs) on a cruise to go snorkeling off the coast of Mexico. Before that, we went to Key West and we went to test out our snorkeling equipment. And that's when you told me that you couldn't swim. (laughs) I was like, but but we're going to go snorkeling and scuba diving in in Mexico. I was more afraid in Key West, I think, of sharks because the water wasn't clear where we were. Okay. But I really can't swim. Like I no. So that I was a bad snorkel, idea. But I I can like in a pool. I could technically swim on the surface and like snorkel. Doesn't require much. If we hadn't gone swimming in Key West, when were you going to tell me? As I failed miserably <laughs> at snorkeling. <laughs> like ideally, I would love to go snorkeling. It's just right. there's something about it that you, you like, were just going to tell the tour guide at the time. Okay, here's the deal. I didn't tell him I can't swim. So you're going to have to save me after I jump in. It's not that I'm going to f- sink, though. Well, I think snorkeling is just floating, but on your face, right? Right. So but, you would, yeah. but it's a psychological breathing thing for me. But the good part about that is we got to see some cool Mayan temples instead. Yes, the city of Tulum, if you have not been, is definitely worth the very, very hot sun that you have to endure <laughs> to, to go there. Speaking of drowning in the lake and everything, if that many people had drowned in the lake... Take swimming lessons. Make sure everyone that lives there, if you're not going to fill in the lake, take swimming lessons. Make that a thing. You're rich. You got time. The guy knew how to swim. So Julian knew how to swim, but he never got around to teaching Troyan how to swim. Whoops. You haven't taught me how to swim yet. Right. I just made fun of you because you couldn't. Right. That's going to come back to bite me one day, isn't Uh it? Remind me not to pose for a portrait in the middle of a lake. Why didn't she go in and save him? You know what? The funny thing about that is if you actually see the painting that she was making, it's just like a guy that could have been any guy. It could have been like a scarecrow sitting in a boat in the middle of the lake. So for that little two inch patch of person, Julian died. Just try to make her feel worse, aren't you? <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just saying that it's not worth dying over. So if he was a superb swimmer and he got bored after 10 minutes or so and fell in, You think he was drugged or you think he had a heart attack or you think something other than the drowning happened? Because why would he just fall in? I have no idea. I don't know what would make a superb swimmer drown. Okay, I've been learning a lot about drowning because I'm crazy. And because there's been a lot of this is what real drowning looks like on social media lately. Apparently, it's not what you think. It's not screaming and flailing. It's silent. Anyway. Similar to uh, pornography is not what it is. Exactly. Right, okay. It's not what is depicted in television. So my thought is, is if he was messing around and fell in and his lungs filled with water before he could get more air, drowning doesn't mean you fall to the bottom. Drowning is more of an internal 
like you can drown in what an inch of water or something like that so if his lungs filled with air i mean not (laughs) the opposite the other thing (laughs) the other thing with oxygen in it add some h2 to that if his lungs filled with water before he could get air and there was no oxygen going to his brain that would be him drowning that doesn't require a lot of time. So if he fell and it was an accident and he breathed in water, I mean, I guess it's plausible. It's not impossible. I'm just thinking there might have been some other foul play going Ghosts. on. Ghosts. Could have been ghosts. Could have been Jimmy. Miss Stoltz pulled his ass down. Could have been Jason. <laughs> I just like heard the noise. <laughs> that's something I thought of. When you're drowning in bottom of lake, that's Friday the 13th. You know, you can't not think of that. You know when this episode aired? When? December 13th. When I saw that, I was like, man, you know how cool that would be if it was Friday the 13th? So I'm like Googling, when was December 13th, 1989? And I was all excited. It's a Wednesday. Ah, Wednesday the 13th. Yeah, it was so not as exciting. But if it was, that would have been cool. You know this Friday is Friday the 13th, and there's a full moon. And this earthquake that they had. These couple earthquakes. It was a pretty violent earthquake. There was lots of camera shake. I mean, there was lots of ground shaking going on. <laughs> I was thinking that myself. All the camera shaking was a lot more than I'm used to. I'm used to camera shaking because I watch a lot of Star Trek. So anytime something happens on the ship, they shake the camera a little bit. But this was just like all over the place, crazy shaking. I've never been in an earthquake. But I think that it wouldn't be that violent. But I could be wrong. Have you seen the damage that earthquakes could do? Yeah, so Maybe. Maybe maybe they're right. Maybe they did like research. I'm not saying that I'm right. I'm just, it, it gave me the impression that it was more shaking than you would see in an earthquake. They were just trying to be more dramatic for the small, low def screens. But it was a real earthquake, right? Oh, yeah. On that date in history, yeah. California's Silmer quake. It was the worst recorded quake in the city's history. The heaviest death toll was in San Fernando Valley, the epicenter. And uh, scientists at the California Institute of Technology said the quake measured 6.5 on the Richter scale. That's pretty big. So maybe the camera shaking wasn't overdone. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I have not been in an earthquake either. So I do not have an opinion on that because it could have been that bad. I was scared for them. I was like, get out of the mausoleum. I don't think I would go chasing voices, though. So especially to a mausoleum. I think uh, Troyan trying to find Julian again with hearing the voices, I think a lot of that had to do with guilt because she watched him drown. So she's got to hate herself, really. Oh, probably. I think that if I were in her shoes, I guess it's understandable. I would not want to be in her shoes with the voices and the mausoleum and the the weird occurrences. If I were in her shoes, I would hope they would be non-slip because there's water everywhere in that place. Is the canvas still raining? <laughs> I'm just saying, I would be walking around with those swimmies on my arms and a life vest and maybe a flotation device. <laughs> just in case. Just in case. I'm saying, if somebody's showing me paintings that are dripping wet of me drowning. Yeah, that doesn't really sound like something I'd want to be involved in. I might move to the desert. <laughs> For real. I mean, but that's me. She was a brave lady. Did you like the ending? I know we talked about a little bit about it earlier, but did you like the ending? Was was that Quantum Leap for you, or did it violate your knowledge of Quantum Leap up to that point? I liked the ending, but I'm not set in my Quantum Leap ways either. Okay, that's good. Like, I don't say that was a very unlike Quantum Leap episode, because I don't know very much about Quantum Leap. Right, the rules are still evolving for you. Right. Okay, so overall, did you like A Portrait for Troyan? 
Yes, I liked an episode with Deborah Pratt in it. I really liked her portrayal of Troyan. And though I'm not really fond of ghost stories, I like the element of it. There really wasn't lessons to be taught or, or morals or there wasn't really a... I mean, obviously, like, don't lie and kill your sister. But, you know, it wasn't, a, again, not really a serious episode. I mean, it kind of was. It wasn't a happy-go-lucky one like Man of La Mancha. I pulled a message or a meaning out of this episode. Oh? Don't gamble. <laughs> because the house always wins and you'll have to kill your sister. I'm not good at gambling. I always lose. Or at least uh, do it in moderation, right? Gamble with your own money. Right. <laughs> not with your sister's fortune. Right. When you know right and wrong, choose right, not wrong. Don't be like Jimmy, kids. Not this Jimmy. Be like the other Jimmy. The other Jimmy is very nice. Right. For me, the main thing about it was that Deborah Pratt was in it, and I'm a fan of hers. So getting to see her act in this episode was fun for me. I, I think if it wasn't Deborah Pratt or I didn't know who she was, I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much as I did. And you also knew Carolyn Seymour, I think, from Star Trek, too, right? Right. I'm a big fan of hers because she's been in so many amazing things, including Star Trek. So uh, when I did see her in this episode, I was like, I know who that is. And you got to speak with her. Which was amazing. She's got an amazing voice and she's had a very exciting career and she's done so many things that I'm fond of. And she's also someone else in Quantum Leap that you'll get to meet later, but I know who she is. The mysteries that await me. Lothos, center me on Carolyn Seymour. Thank you for joining us today on the uh, Quantum Leap podcast. Not at all, entirely welcome. My pleasure. Could you tell me about your experience filming Quantum Leap? the four different episodes? Quantum Leap was probably one of my favorite shows to do, uh, partly because I was a huge fan of Dean Stockwell and also because I adored watching Scott Bakula work. You know, he, he just was so professional and he was so good at what he did and he just he was just extraordinary. And I, I, loved, I loved being with them and they, they were such fun. I mean, Scott was very professional and Dean was very funny. So we had... We had a great time on the shoots. It was, I mean, Dean was always late. He always had his cigar. He was always saying, what are we doing? Where are we? What, what scene is it? And, and it just, it, it relaxed everybody, really, because then the focus was on him. And, of course, he knew exactly what he was doing. So, you know, but it was, it was just great fun. I loved playing that character. I loved Renee Coleman. And uh, we, we just had a great time. And Belisario was really good to me on that shoot. Just, I mean, he, he had his moments. But he, on that shoot, he left me alone. I don't mean that, you know, I don't mean that in a salacious way. I mean, he just, you know, he could be very hands-on as a producer. And by then he trusted me, so he let me be. Did uh, the first episode of Quantum Leap you do help you get the role of Zoe later on? Um... I don't know. I, you know, I have no idea. Um, all I know is that that was the most uncomfortable scene I've ever shot, sitting in that water and being submerged, and then having to come up. It was just, it was just a horrendously uncomfortable, you know, episode. But um, I got on very well with Deborah Pratt, and we became sort of friends then. And I think that sort of helped a bit. I have no idea. I mean, I'd worked with Belisario before. I'd done a couple of Magnum PIs. 
And uh, I knew that he was saving me for something else. And so it was just, I mean, it was just really nice. I mean, you, you know, in those days, you met a producer and you created a relationship with them and then they would offer you stuff out of the blue, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what happened. And it was just really nice. I think it came more from what I did on Magnum than, than, than you know, from drowning, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you were also a, kind of a scary ghost at the end there. I was. I was. I've had several scary ghosts, really. I mean, evil is what I do. I'm known for. So, you know, evil, strong, powerful, domineering, all of those, and, and, or, and or murderers. Do you like playing uh, evil people? Of course. I mean, they're much more, they're, they're much more interesting to play. And and I've always loved them. I've always loved them, but I've played a lot of them. In England, I used to play much nicer people. And when I got to the States, it turned into evil. Because Murder, She Wrote, I did four of those. I did a, I did three Father Dowlings. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, that's all I did was kill people. <laughs> and get paid for it. And then Lacey, I mean, I just killed people. Or, or, and then when I, when I went into the alien work, um, you know, I was just a, a leader. Interesting, huh? Do you get recognized more at conventions from uh, Star Trek or from Quantum Leap or something else? No, Star Trek. Always Star Trek. Always Star Trek. Uh, Toref is one of their favorites, and then closely followed by Miraf to Yale, the scientist. But Toref is their favorite. I like Toref too. I thought she was really good. I loved Miraf to Yale. That was uh, really good in the episode First Contact of Next Generation. Really good character. It, uh, sticks in your mind. Was Is that more like you than... Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. My children might disagree with you, but I'd like to think that I was more like Marasta than I am Commander Torres. But uh, it was, there were fascinating things to do. I mean, you know, on one hand, it was just a job, and I was really lucky, and they called me back four times. But on the other hand, it was always fascinating to do, because at the time, when, when I did it, I had no idea that it was going to turn into this sort of thing afterwards, you know, the conventions and all of that. I had no idea. Was the makeup work hard to do? Was that difficult being in makeup? Makeup, the makeup work was an absolute sod. You know, you, I got there at three thirty in the morning, ready to shoot by seven thirty. It was hell. And the first time I went in for the, because they had to make a mask. So the first time I went in and I got the complete face mask put on, I was doing it for the guy who was going to be an extra. And as soon as they covered him up and put the straws up his nose and in his mouth, he lasted about thirty seconds when he was gone. He just couldn't take it. But they were horrible, horrible, horrible things to wear. They're just no fun. And by the end of the week, you've just got this ring of, you know, because I was allergic to the glue that they put on. And as Marasta Yale, they made me a special pair of sort of fish flippers, you know, hands that were like mittens. And these mittens were just a pain in the butt. I just didn't know what to do with these things. And the scenes always, they let you wait around with all this stuff on, and then suddenly they say, ready in five, and then you knew you were going to work for about eight hours. So they came, they said, ready in five. I said, okay, have to go to the loo. Zoomed off to go to the bathroom. And as I turned around, knocked one of these things into the loo. <laughs> one of these fish finger things into the loo. And I sat there staring at this thing floating about. I thought, what do I do? I didn't know if I could wash it. I didn't know how to, I mean, I, I didn't know what to do with the thing. So I very gingerly put it under water. And it immediately absorbed all the water that was in the basin. So it was now this really revolting thing that I, I had to put back on my hand, and I used it a lot in the scene. 
So it was just it was, and, ugh, it was just awful. So I, I eventually got it wrung out and dried off and then went in there and said I'd lost them. And so then they tied them both onto me with a piece of string like a child going to school. <laughs> and these stupid things right around me. But anyway, and they weren't going to make me another one because they, they were very difficult to make and they had so many to make with all that stuff that ears were put on. I had maybe three pairs of ears and they were put on separately and I had one pair of these mittens for Marasta and I had three masks for Torah. And that was that was it. So I had to they would take they took three and a half hours to put on every morning and they took an hour and a half to take off every night. So I got there at three thirty, I was on the set by seven thirty, wrapped at ten thirty and back at three thirty. So was it a relief when you got to do your Voyager episodes where you didn't have the prosthetic makeup? Well the Voyager thing was a whole other case. That was a whole that was there were massive problems with her too. Um, well, she took a long time, too, because of the wig and all of that sort of stuff, and, and you know, the, the hideous harridan, as I used to call it. And I did that shoot with septicemia. I had been bitten by a cat down to the bone, and I didn't want it to not do the job, so I thought I'd just quietly not mention to them. You know, it, I didn't, I'd already done the Friday shoot. I was coming in to finish her off on the Monday. So I thought, and I got bitten on the Saturday, and I knew I was in trouble because it blew up and I had blood poisoning. So I went to the hospital and said, listen, I've got the shoot, so just fix me up until uh, Tuesday. I'll be in on Tuesday morning. <laughs> I mean, I was insane. So I got to Paramount, and... My arm was all puffy, and I was wearing that stupid outfit. So I just said quietly to somebody, listen, you know, on the TV, just keep me filled up with painkillers because I've got this blood poisoning thing, and I just and I need to, I just want to finish this shoot, and I, I've told them I'll be back on Tuesday. Well, they absolutely freaked. I mean, it was just naive of me to think I could get away with it. And they all freaked, and they told the director, they told the producer, and the next thing I was marched off half-dressed in my Victorian gear, the emergency room at Cedar sinai which is the big hospital in L.A. And I get towed in there into the emergency. I'm wearing the wig with all the lace uh, stuff. I have that strange makeup on. I've got a Victorian petticoat and all of that stuff on. And I'm walking through the emergency room, and there's two guys who've just been in a knife fight, and they're lying on stretchers just bleeding everywhere. And they look at me as I walk past, and their eyes get absolutely enormous. And they just say, we've died, we've died, we've died. And they really thought I was something out of another life that had just walked past them. You know, and it, was, it must have been the most weird thing, seeing me in, in costume going in, in the emergency room. I don't know, maybe they're used to it because it's Hollywood, but it was, it was it's fun for me. You would think they would see that all the time. Well, you'd think so, but I don't think they did, because normally most people get, you know, I went to the emergency because it was blood poisoning, but I think most of it, the, 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 the doctors go to the, to the studios. That storyline of the hollow novel that you were in on Voyager, it never really got resolved. Was there any plans to bring you back for another episode? Oh, yeah, they thought this would be an arc that would go on through the series. But every so often, which was, you know, because it was basically Mrs. Danvers. Um that they thought that I would come back, and, and they told me that at the beginning. They said, listen, this is your chance, because you're going to be probably in three or four, maybe five of these episodes. And the writers just couldn't make an interesting enough story out of it for it to be continued. That was basically all that happened. So they dropped it. They didn't like it up there, upstairs, you know? I liked it. I, I was always looking forward to seeing how it ended, but... 
Oh, well, I know. We, I mean, yeah, I know. Kate and I had all sorts of ideas about it because it could have been really interesting, but they did, they just didn't want to pursue it. And I, I don't think that they were, you know, well, I don't know. I don't know if Sandra knew enough about about the classics, you know, because there was, there was all sorts of fun ways it could go. Anyway, they didn't, so that's fine. Other than uh, the Star Trek and Quantum Leap, do you have any favorite projects that you did or that people seem to enjoy that you were in? I know you've done so much, but uh, is there anything that like really sticks out as your favorite? There was so much of it because you know television is such a strange medium that it's very difficult to lose yourself in it. You know, as an actor, I mean, and I've done a lot of theater and I've done a lot of good movies. You know, and I don't have a special one because each one. I don't. I don't have a special one. I have some horrible ones I'd rather not have done, but I, I which I don't, don't even talk about. But the ones that I did that people know me for, I always had a good time. The people made it's so much easier to work well when you're surrounded by good actors, and it's as simple as that. You know, the Cagney and Laces I did. I loved both those women. They were just extraordinary and became great friends. And Patrick Stewart was a joy, as was, I mean, everybody on Star Trek was a joy. I loved, I, I, you know, that's all I can say. I love doing theater. I've done a lot of that. And it's the company that allows you to go to different heights. Bad television breeds bad performances. Good stories, good acting. It's a very boring answer to your <laughs> No, that was good. That was good. With the advent of Netflix and people watching older television shows, do you get new generations coming up to you that recognize you from uh, shows you did earlier in your career? Well, there are some people that do. I mean, you know, and on this side of the globe, what's happening is that people know me very well for a ghastly movie that I did that I hated called Steptoe and Son. <laughs> that, that was the original Sanford and Son, right? That was the, the yeah, the precursor to Sanford and Son. And, and I did the only movie. And and I hated it. I hated. I mean, I loved. I loved Wilfred, but I hated the rest of them. And it ended up being a very uncomfortable shoot for me. But it's it's incredibly popular. And and I was in a cab about six months ago. I was in London, and I hadn't been back for thirty five years, really, not for any length of time. And I was in this cab, and I was going off somewhere, and the cabbie kept looking at me and smiling. And he said, why are you smiling? And I said, well, it's so bizarre to be back here after 30 years tooling around in a cab. And he said, why, where have you been? And I said, well, Los Angeles. And he said, yeah, uh-huh. I knew that. And I said, how did you know that? He said, because I know who you are. I said, what do you mean? He said, you did a movie called Steptoe and Son, didn't you? And I said, yes. And he said, that's one of my favorite movies. So bizarre to be recognized. I mean, he didn't know anything else like that. He didn't know me from even the, the, the Star Trek or any of that. He remembered me from Steptoe. I mean, I did Steptoe in 1972 or 70. That's a long time ago. And I was born. So that was uh, sort of interesting. People know me here for Survivors, which is also a television series. Right. That's big on Netflix right now, too. Is it big? I think so. Uh, I see a lot of people talking about it. So it's, it's on my queue. I'm going to check it out. Well... No, it's a very, it's a really interesting, I think it holds up. So if you can get by the accents, I think it really holds up. Oh, I love uh, British television, so. <laughs> well, we're doing, funnily enough, um, the three of us that did the first series are all getting together to do another, a radio, an audio show, an audio series of Survivors. Oh, wow. And we're doing it for a company called Big Finish here in, in England. So we're also at the moment doing a lot of Doctor Who. I love Doctor Who. 
Well, they're doing Doctor Who with Colin, and I and I've done one of them as an alien. So I'm going back to do another. And then they said, you know, we're going to do a series with with all you original guys of survivors. I think that's a great idea. So that's one of my projects coming up this year. That's amazing. You you've been doing a lot of voice work lately um, for video games also, and uh, you're one of the few people that have done Star Trek and Star Wars because you've done the Star Wars video games. Um, I have. I know. <laughs> I've never thought of it like that. <laughs> you, you and Doctor Who, you've been in everything really. The, all the iconic big sci-fi things. I know. Isn't that cool? It's it's amazing. I love it. I love it. It's so cool. I do. I really do. I really do. I'm now. I went to Cardia to do a convention, and we, we got a whole bunch of, of stuff together. And of the photographs that went most of all, it was uh, Mass Effect, the Doctor in Mass Effect. The Cardiff University were there, and, they, and that's the one that they recognized me for, and they really they, they love that character. Do you enjoy doing the voice work? It's such hard work. I love it. I love it because it's a chance to act, you know, in, in, in your comfy clothes. But... It is such hard work, and you really, you really know that you've worked hard when you when you've done one of those shows. To work with just a, a microphone and to make it come alive, and know that the people are going to write this old character and the creature that it's going to be. I mean, you, then luckily they give you a guideline of the character. You know, they give you a, a diagram of what she's going to look like, and then then you go from there. It's it's incredibly hard work. Because you have nobody to act off, so it's it's great fun. I love it, but I'm always exhausted, and also because there's always a lot of dying in it. So one's <laughs> screaming, and you're, you know, I mean, the last one, always the last one, Gears of War. Um, Mira, the, we went through one afternoon where Chris called me and he said, "We're going to do this. Is going to be hell. So you've got to really have your voice warmed up." So I'm singing and warming up my voice in the car going over there. People thought I was nuts, and I get in there, and he's got like 60 pages of, of Mira, the Logos Green, dying. And he said, all right, so we're going to start with this one. And this is when you get cut in half with an electric, with a, with a, with a, with a saber, you know, a, 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 a laser saber. This is where you get burned. This is where you get blown up. This is where, you, and there are all these different ways that I have to die. I literally, I couldn't talk for about two days. <laughs> And it's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting using that much energy and having to remember that you can't go off mic, that you've got to keep it in focus. You've got to remember where... It's crazy. It's crazy, but I love it. One, I, you know, I lose pounds doing that. You just sweat buckets in that studio. It's great fun. Going back to Quantum Leap, did you find a, a different playing a hologram versus a leaper? No, because there is no difference. The truth is there. You you, you play the, the you play the person. You know, she doesn't know she's a hologram. She doesn't care. If she's a hologram. I mean, the only element that might have come into it is that she could have more fun. But I mean, really, she just as far as she was concerned, I guess she just thought she was real. We have a question from Hayden. Yeah. Miss Stoltz was a ghost and disappeared once her body was found. Zoe and Aaliyah are implied to be dead and sent by the devil to undo Sam's work. Do you think it was intended that Mrs. Stoltz and Zoe are the same character and that Zoe was recruited because of her previous altercation with Sam, or do you see them as entirely separate characters? Well, this person has spent a lot of time thinking about it. <laughs> um, what a good question. Do you know, I, I mean, I've never, ever considered it, so I don't, I, I can only, because I've never really thought about it, I would have to say that it was, that, that, that it was two separate characters. But maybe that's what John said. He never brought that up to me. 
but maybe that's exactly what it was. But what a brilliant concept. Thank you, <laughs> whoever that was. Brilliant. That was uh, Hayden. Hayden, well, thank you. Well done. You have such a such a great voice. Uh, I think that's why people recognize you no matter how many prosthetics you wear is partly, you know, of course you're acting, but the voice is amazing. I think it is too. My voice has got me into lots of trouble and also lots of joy. It's worked out well. It, was, it did not start off like this, Albie. It was a very different voice. It was very high. I had a very high voice. And... I went to drama school, and the, probably the, the paramount voice teacher in the world, a woman called Sis Berry, who is extraordinary and stands among, well, maybe not the world, she's probably amongst five. But she taught me voice, and I used to talk like the queen. And I had no more register. I talked exactly like that, as you will see when you watch Survivors. And she came up to me, and she just punched me in the diaphragm one day. And if you get punched in the diaphragm, and you let out the air, your voice goes... <laughs> and she said to me, I never, ever, ever want to hear your voice go higher than that. And that's where my voice trying to keep it down there. Um, and now it's completely natural. And I didn't have a range before, so I was in, it was incapable of working for me because that's my tool. And if I don't use it properly, you know, I let it down. And she enabled me to see how far I could go with it. That's why voice work is such a joy now because I really practice with it. It's always learning. I never get it right. <laughs> never get it right. No matter how many takes, I never get it right. I maybe I've maybe gotten it right twice in a forty year career. Wow. Always driving. Do you have any little anecdotes or stories that happen while filming Quantum Leap the listeners might want to hear? I don't. I mean that's the awful thing is I don't. I mean I you know it's been a long time and you know I, I don't because there just wasn't time for anything too funny to happen. I'm sure Scott has some things to talk about, but there was nothing horrible happened on that show. It was very tightly organized, very tightly run, and there just wasn't time. You know, Scott was professional and just had a bead on... on, on. He knew everything about everyone on that shoot. He knew... He knew every, and he also knew everybody. He knew, he knew everybody's names. He, wasn't, he was just divine and professional and gentle and kind, but so well rehearsed and so on the ball every single day. I've never known a man work so hard. And the opposite end of that was Dean, who didn't work so hard. <laughs> and Dean was the one who had the jokes, and Dean was the one with that saucy cigar that I loathed. And and he and I were the naughty couple on the set. I mean, we you know we were the ones that created sort of you know if there was any problem or we weren't ready, we'd kick off in the middle of a take or something. It was being asked. But I don't have any sort of real anecdotes because there just wasn't time for them. It was a very professional shoot. Well, that's good to know. It's good to know that you enjoyed your time, though. I did. I loved it. I loved it. Was it difficult with all the special effects they had to do with the leaping and the morphing? Did you have to do spend extra time like standing still, and was that difficult? Um, no, that in itself wasn't difficult. What was difficult was remembering where you were when you when it turned around. You know what I mean? Um, that thank God for that continuity girl who really you know continuity guy. I mean, you know, they both of them worked really really hard. No, that it just was confusing because the, the, you know they'd say you've morphed now and boom, and you were somewhere else, and so it was sort of it was sort of weird, but it wasn't difficult. I didn't have to do anything special. Special effects, they do it all. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. It was lovely. It was lovely. You're very welcome, Arthur. 
How cool was that? She sounds so awesome. I love her voice. I, I really do. She's a great actress, but I mean, no matter what she's playing or what makeup she has on, I can always tell who she is just by her voice. Yeah, it's cool that she mentioned that she didn't always have that voice. I don't think I could change my voice if I wanted to. For your craft, maybe. If only you did something that required a voice. And I still have (laughs) just the same one. (laughs) Hi, I'm Chris. And I'm Stephanie. We're the hosts of Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. We invite you to join us for discussions about individual episodes, as well as the characters and themes of Orphan Black. We combine fandom and analysis, or finalysis, if you will, at Tatiana is Everyone because we're analytical fangirls. We'd love for you to be part of the conversation, so visit TatianaIsEveryone.com and share your thoughts and theories. Welcome to the trip, man. Today, the cosmos you've never experienced. Hours of extras you've never seen, including a new cosmic calendar. Mind blown. Cosmos. Own it on Blu-ray and digital HD today. This is Jennifer Rhodes, and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. And we have a voicemail from Phil from Sydney, Australia. What? All right, an email, then a voicemail. Hey there, Albie and Heather. This is Phil from Sydney. I just wanted to say thanks for reading my email on your Catch a Falling Star podcast. I've been listening to your Quantum Leap podcasts pretty much non-stop since I wrote that email after listening to your Genesis podcast. I've been listening at home, on my way to and from work, and even on my lunch breaks. I just finished your podcast for the Americanization of Magico episodes, so I'm going to be caught up with all your episodes pretty soon. Of course, my fiancé, Brittany, and I are still watching Quantum Leap together, and we're about to start Season 2 tonight with the Honeymoon Express episode. Brittany and I watch a lot of TV together, and we're also watching Orphan Black and Game of Thrones right now, but we still make sure to include Quantum Leap on our schedule. Brittany even likes to sing along with the theme song, which I have to admit is pretty cute. Anyway, keep up the great work with your podcast. I can't believe there hadn't been a Quantum Leap podcast before you guys came along, so there must be a lot of people besides me out there who love your podcast and really enjoy and appreciate what you guys are doing. And it sounds like you guys enjoy watching Quantum Leap and talking about it just as much, so keep it up. Bye, guys. Thank you so much, Phil. That's so awesome that you called in. We love to hear voicemails. I'm glad that you and Brittany are watching the show and you're catching up on our podcast. It's really cool. And I totally sing along to the theme song, too. Maybe it's just a girl thing. I sing along to it. Oh. You're going to sing in everyone, aren't you? Maybe. No. But it's cute when I sing, right? It's cute when you sing. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. We love voicemails. Of course, emails are awesome, but voicemails are even better because we get to hear what you sound like. Right. You sound so much like Hayden. Right? (laughs) At first, I was like, okay, Hayden's pulling my leg. I still think it's Hayden pulling my leg. (laughs) No, about halfway through, I realized it wasn't Hayden. Yeah. And we have an email from Father Beast. These emails will be read by one. I've caught up on both your podcast and in watching the earlier episodes of Quantum Leap. Highlights from the podcast. Ah, Heather turned into Kevin Batchelder? Ah, what? Albie had never seen Disco Inferno? That's one of the good ones. Heather totally nailed it when she said that I was covering up, letting it slip that Sam had been married. I went back and watched it, and she was totally right on. Al did that lame, ha ha, just kidding, and then looked down, trying to think of a way to change the subject. This may be one of our first clues that perhaps Sam's manipulations in the episode Starcrossed might have had the desired effect. Also, from your episode on the Americanization of Machiko, which was the first episode exactly one before I had started listening, 
was Hayden McQueenie's essay on why Sam is leaping about physically. In it, he covered most of the points I did, which seems to indicate that the evidence actually does support our claim. Highlights from the TV show. The scene in Genesis where Sam is explaining to the Air Force doctor how to stop labor using alcohol is one of my favorites of the series. Come on, man, use your brain. What will happen if we give her an intravenous solution of alcohol? And we then see the light dawn in the doctor's eyes. Wonderful. Also in Genesis, there is a scene where Peggy gives Sam this big kiss, and then as he walks away, she touches her lips in confusion. She shrugged it off, but I knew what it was. She knows her husband's kiss. I had never actually watched Play It Again Seymour all the way through. Claudia Christian sure is pretty. Of all the episodes of Quantum Leap, only Disco Inferno was not available on Netflix or Hulu, so I checked it out from the library on DVD. Imagine my astonishment when I discovered that they had cut out all the disco music and replaced it with generic disco elevator music. I don't recall all the songs in that episode, but I recall specifically that That's the Way I Like It by Casey and the Sunshine Band was playing as he leaped in. This is corroborated by the leap at the end of Honeymoon Express on Netflix, which does have the music on it. On the DVD, I was further disappointed since they not only changed the music, they cut off Sam's opening narration. In the original, he says, and just when you find a song you can dance to forever, they change the music. I didn't have the trouble with the music not being writing Good Morning Peoria like you were talking about, but maybe that's because I was watching on Netflix. Does anyone know where I can see Disco Inferno with the original music? Speaking of Good Morning Peoria, I enjoyed the playing of Great Balls of Fire, which was used later in the series in the episode Miss Deep South. Anyways, I'm caught up, so I'll try to stay current. Father Beast. It's cool that you're caught up, so you can stay current, like you said, and uh, we're glad that you're really joining us full-time with this podcast. It's great. Yeah, it's cool you went back and, and caught up. I'm glad you heard Hayden's point of that whole leaping physically aura thing. So now we're all on the same page. I think we all have the same general consensus now. So We have now been informed. Yes, we know. And we have another email from Father Beast. Sweet. Okay, Father Beast here. You guys released the episode for Catch a Falling Star so soon after So Help Me God that I hadn't had time to get my comments in yet. I was expecting an interval more like that after Jimmy. I guess you guys have more time for Quantum Leap now that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has finished its season. So what I'm going to do is make my comments as originally intended, and then comment on a couple of things from your episode. I think this was the first episode of Quantum Leap that I saw. I'm not entirely sure about that, as their air date was just a couple weeks before our wedding. If so, I probably rode my bicycle down to her friend's place to see it at her recommendation, as I didn't have a TV at the time. In any case, I seem to recall that I was not sure what to make of it. A time-traveling show without anything futuristic, where the time-traveler doesn't have control of where he wants to travel in time, and he can't let people know he's traveling in time, and limited to a narrow scope of history seemed to combine to an I-don't-know concerning the show. Still, the guy projected from the future with the supercomputer was cool. I wasn't into musical theater back then, although I have since learned to love it. Through long association with my wife, a longtime vet of several community productions before and since. Part of my ambivalence with the first episode for me was that he didn't seem to change anything momentous. It has taken rewatches and general knowledge of the series to appreciate it. I really like this episode now, and that I enjoy the parts of the play I see now doesn't hurt either. Sam not seeming to change anything momentous makes sense when I realize that's not what the episode is about. It's about Sam having doubts about the whole business, 
and deciding to rededicate himself to what he is wandering around time doing. The appearance of his first crush, in a situation where he can kindle a romance between them, has just served to bring his feelings to the fore. Sam has indeed been doing this for a while, enduring all sorts of crazy things, for very little recompense. Quite simply, the night has been too lonely, and the road has been too long. And, he feels, isn't he due some chance at happiness? Besides, nobody back at Project Quantum Leap can make him do anything. Theoretically, he could just quit. But the problem with kindling a romance with Nicole is that it isn't what he really wants. Sure, he's with her for a while, but she's not with Sam, she's with Ray. And deep down he knows that he can't stay here forever, leaving the real Ray stuck in the waiting room with his life, taken away from like, well, like Sam's was. And if it's wrong to do it to Sam, it's wrong to do it to Ray. If he did quit and not move on, the best he could hope for would be something without satisfaction at too high a price. It doesn't help at all that the assignment he is given to save the egotistical sod from losing his career is something that isn't very appealing in itself. The more we come to know John O'Malley, the more we realize that if he did fall, it would be richly deserved. He's an egomaniac who walks all over everyone, especially Ray. Quite simply, Sam has no reason to save him. Apparently good reasons for not saving him, and that's the end of the story. Sam even makes the conscious decision to not save him. But that doesn't come to nothing, because when the time comes, Sam rushes out there and does save him. I have no illusions as to think Sam thought he was doing the world a favor by saving him. Sam is just the kind of guy who couldn't live with himself if he knew something like that was coming and did nothing. And in saving John, he saved himself. He faced the realization that he really does care, and to do the exact kind of thing he has been doing while leaping around time is more or less why he founded Quantum Leap in the first place. The rest is just window dressing for Sam. After he saves John, Manny tells him of the deception, and John inexplicably lets him do the show, which is really cool but Sam is already back on track. Oh yeah, just why did John O'Malley let Ray do the show? He picked himself up and was all ready to just walk all over everyone again and go on with the show, but he is brought up short and changes his mind when he sees who saved him. My thought is that John knows he's a jerk, but keeps being one because he has to be on top all the time, which means stepping on the little people. That may be a part of why he drinks so much, but when he sees that Ray, who he has deliberately belittled at every opportunity, is the one who saved him, it gives him pause. He watched the show in confusion from backstage, even giving little attention to the girl who gives him gratuitous praise. He just can't figure out why that would happen. We also learned this episode that Sam has an eidetic memory. That's gotta come in handy. Now on to comments on your show covering the episode. You guys talked for a bit about Syracuse being in New York. I may be mistaken, but I thought Syracuse was in New Jersey. Maybe there's a Syracuse New York, and that's where they were, and I just missed it? You also brought up that this might be the first time in the show that Sam has um, had sex. I think it is. It was strongly implied that his girlfriend in the right hand of God was his regular bed partner, but since we know Sam's feelings about not doing it with anyone he doesn't love, he probably ducked out of that. In Honeymoon Express, it was quite the plot, and right at the end of the episode he says, I love you, indicating he is finally ready, but he leaps before it occurs. Anyway... You wondered if anyone would notice that things didn't feel the same down there. I did some thinking on this, and I think the show just nearly sidestepped the issue. He never has sex while appearing as a female, and as a male, doesn't do it with the Leapy's wife or regular bed partner. Spoilers. At least I don't think so. The situation with Nicole in this episode was about as close as it gets, 
and she probably shrugs off any difference to the years that have been apart. Perhaps there will be something in future episodes to give further light. Jill's essay on the odd placement of leaping in scenes has also got me thinking. It became apparent to me fairly early on that the leaping white flash is a great place to cut and paste, and I just assumed that they adjusted it to show an earlier episode leap in whenever they were due to show a rerun the next week. But it seems that this is not the case, and every episode has a certain leap in attached to it. Jill points out that three episodes leap into the color of truth, but it's even worse than that. Each of those three leap-in scenes has a slightly different edit, indicating that each was produced separately. Still, the white flash is still a good cutting point, and I was able to make my own VHS tape with all of the leaps in and out run through in a couple hours. I did have to get a bit creative since some episodes have no previous episode leap-in, but I managed it, and I only edited that with a pause button and two VCRs. Today's tech should have more options. By that way, after writing that the next week, The Play's The Thing, last time, I was chagrined to learn that there is a Quantum Leap episode entitled The Play's The Thing. I hope I didn't cause confusion. I'll try to do better. In the future. Speaking of which, next time, Graveyard Mystery. Father Beast. Thank you, Juan. And thanks, Father Beast, because you brought up the whole sex thing that we tried to figure out in the last episode. I agree with you that they sidestepped the issue. They were just like, well, we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) Now that we're looking for it, it'll be interesting to have that in our mind while we're watching future episodes and see how far they sidestep it and maybe how they give hints to it. Jill's essay on re-editing the openings is a great idea. And I said in the last episode that I don't think they could do it because they didn't film it. But, you know, of course, after I said it, I realized that all that stuff from the future episode is there. They just need to re-edit the opening a little bit like they do. And they're always different edits, aren't they? When you see something, again, and they're, they're different takes, different scenes, and sometimes even different dialogue. That, the fact that the preview, is it a preview? I don't know. But it's like a different shot completely. Like I think Good Morning Peoria, it sticks out in my mind as being completely different than the opening of actually Good Morning Peoria. So if they're going to make a completely different edit for each one, why didn't they think about that? Did they just say this is not ever going to run again? So I think the mindset was this is for tonight's episode, this week's episode, let's get it out. And then after it, you know what, they already got paid for it and moving on. Then why keep the leap into the next episode at the end of the episode at all? Why not just end it on the white leap out? I'm not sure, but I think it's something that needs to be addressed when they re-release it and update it. I mean, it's not going in there and changing things, like not making Al shoot first, let's say. Right. Audiences today like to binge watch television, and they're going to sit down and watch eight to ten episodes, maybe over a course of a weekend. So if the leap outs and leap ins don't match up, it's just annoying, like you said. So it needs to be maybe fixed, I think. If you're not watching it on a weekly basis, I feel like the leap out at the end of the episode is completely unnecessary altogether. Well, it was the cliffhanger to get you to come back next week. But that's what I'm saying. On DVD, they don't show you the preview for next week. Say we watch Farscape. It's not going to show you next week's preview on the end of the episode. It's just going to go to the next episode. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, right. So to me, the leap out is like a preview for the next episode that they should cut off the end of the episode and just end on the white leaping. For me, maybe it's because I'm a longtime leaper, but I always look forward to the where he's leaping next and the oh boy, because oh, he's in a funny situation. And it's just a happy ending, like a cherry on top for me. I mean, I just feel like that's the easier fix. If they're not going to redo the ins and outs, then at least cut it out. <laughs> cut it cut out. It out. Dave Coulier, right? 
Sure. <laughs> How about this for a super edit? We don't re-edit the leap-ins and leap-outs. When he leaps to white, you leap into the next leap-in in the next episode, and you just make a 57-hour movie. I think the leap-out is a very important part of Quantum Leap. Hmm. Not when you're marathoning. So I guess I guess it's different for me because I didn't see it on a weekly basis. Maybe that's just different. I don't know. Okay. Different generations have different viewing. Somebody needs to fix it regardless. It needs to be fixed. If it was right, I don't think I would even notice. And we have another email. This one's from David Feldman. Greetings. I just learned about the podcast via Facebook and Instagram. I planned on starting with the inaugural episode, but I couldn't resist checking out your episode on Jimmy. Jimmy has long been my favorite episode of the series, and your podcast on it was great. Both the interviews you did for this episode were fun to hear. Overall, it was a great introduction to your show. I've been a fan of Quantum Leap since the late 90s when I discovered it in syndication on the Sci-Fi Channel. This was years before the DVDs came out, so I used to tape the episodes every weekday when I got home from school. I felt a particular kinship with the show not just because of how great it was, but also because Scott Bakula grew up not far from me in suburban St. Louis. Years later, I became friends with some guy who grew up in Kirkwood, Bakula's hometown, and who knew some of Bakula's extended family who still lived there. Anyway, I was obsessed with the show all through my teen years. I collected Quantum Leap comic books, novels, and eventually had some of the episodes on tape. Jimmy has a special place in my heart because it's one of a few episodes that made me cry when I first saw it. The other episode that had this effect on me were The Leap Home and Mirror Image. I remember crying not out of sadness, but more out of joy when Jimmy was finally accepted by his family and co-workers as a real human being and not as a burden. I watched this episode again late last year with my family. I have younger sisters between the ages of 4 to 12 who watched it along with me. It was a special moment because they had never seen Quantum Leap before. I chose Jimmy because I figured if any episode would keep their attention, it would be this one. Sure enough, I was right. They watched the whole episode with me and I remember one of them asking, in response to the character Blue mistreating Jimmy slash Sam, why is he mean to him? It was a very cute moment and made me proud that my sister showed such empathy. When the episode ended, I started to tear up again just like I had about 15 years ago when I first saw it. It's such a powerful episode. It'll always be not just my favorite Quantum Leap episode, but one of my favorite episodes of any TV series I've seen before it since. Keep up the good work with the podcast. I'm going to go back to the first episode and listen to an episode a day during my workout until I'm caught up. So long and take care. David Feldman. Thank you, David. Very nice to hear from you. He's on our Instagram, and I checked out his Instagram. He's got a really cool Instagram. I probably woke him up because uh, one night I liked half of his photos. You were that creeper. <laughs> I was. I was like, oh, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. And I kept going, and I was like, I hope I didn't wake him up. <laughs> he woke up too. wow, the Quantum Leap likes my Instagram photos. But he's, he cool. seems like a really cool guy, and I loved his email, and thank you. Keep him coming, David. And uh, he likes Jimmy like I do, so pretty much for the same reasons. Yeah, I think that I had the same reaction to it. I didn't understand why they were being mean to Jimmy. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And now we have an email from Father Beast. Man, he is just really involved in this episode. He's, How awesome. he's on a roll. I love it. This episode starts out very much like Scooby-Doo, with a graveyard, a storm, and all being very scary. But then we go into the mausoleum and we see his recording equipment and realize, hey, he's a ghost hunter. As we continue the episode, we still get more tropes from Scooby-Doo, including the very creepy housekeeper and the relative who tells Sam, or rather Dr. Mintz, to pack up his nonsense and go away. 
Contrary to expectations, he ends up being the one who is causing the ghost mystery in the first place. And he's doing it for a very Scooby-Doo-like reason. For the money. Scooby-Doo references aside, I enjoyed that Dr. Mintz was a pretty good ghost hunter for his age. There was a cool moment as Sam sees the reflection and runs his hands over his own clean-shaven face where the image is stroking a beard, then runs his fingers through his hair while the image is running fingers over the bald spot. It's a good thing he didn't actually kiss anyone this episode since they would notice his lack of beard. The neat thing about this ghost hunter's equipment is that it actually makes people near the equipment able to hear Al. And I think it's hilarious that Al is even more freaked out by that than the whole ghost business, which he plays up a lot. The ghost hunter stuff comes in quite handy, as Sam uses it to find the stuff which is actually being used to fool Trojan, and then Al uses it against the evil brother who wants to murder his sister. That is, until the brother throws it in the lake. Then comes my laugh out loud moment for the episode. Al, standing on the dock, demands to be centered on Sam, whereupon he is teleported three feet as Sam is running down the pier. The earthquake dislodges bodies from the lake bottom, and we learn that the creepy housekeeper is even creepier than you thought. Maybe we'll see her being creepy again in the future. Side note, Burger Theory, reference to the earthquake movie he was doing a stunt for in Disco Inferno. Some other side notes. The earthquake played a big part in this episode, which I thought was just a bit fortuitous until I checked the date. I think I remembered that earthquake. I was in first grade and living with my parents in a suburb of Los Angeles. The house we rented was just one story, so the damage wasn't bad, but I remember it waking me up and knocking a picture on the wall askew. Right at the beginning of the show, it said that this episode guest starred Deborah Pratt. Yes, she played Trojan. Doing some further looking, I discovered that she was married to Don Belisario, though it seemed they were divorced during the run of Quantum Leap, and they had two children together, one of them whose name is Trojan. Oh, and she, Trojan, is coming to guest on a future episode of Quantum Leap. Looking forward to that, incidentally, a Michael Belisario, child from a previous marriage, was in the Kamikaze Kid, probably as one of the others at the kid's table. Okay, so next week, Drag Racing Hot Rods. Oh, wait. Sorry, Jill. Next time, a big beer party. Thank you, Father Beast. I liked his Scooby-Doo references because I agree with the Scooby-Doo references totally. He talks about Donald Bellazario in the mirror, and I think they did the mirror gag different in this episode. If you notice, if you think back, you either see Sam or Don. You never see him at the same time. So I think that either they didn't want to do the choreography or he just didn't want to be in a shot that it didn't match up. Yeah, I think that he knew it would look better. And I I like I didn't think about the beard and the shaved face and the bald. I but that's really cool of a point to make up because I liked the whole mirror scene. I just liked it. I didn't really think much into it, but it looked really good. And yeah, it is a good thing he didn't kiss anyone because that would have been a little weird. Would have been odd. Yeah. I see a beard, I don't feel a beard. <laughs> Can you imagine? That would be so cool. You wouldn't have to shave. I don't know. I've never kissed anyone with a beard. (laughs) And we have another email. This is awesome from Jonathan. Hey, Albie and Heather. This is just a very short email to say thank you for all your hard work with the podcast. It's fantastic that the series still inspires people to take time out of their lives to watch and discuss it. And I know that what a thankless task it can be putting so many hours into a project. So well done for getting this far. The interviews are the icing on the cake. It's great to hear from those who made the show, particularly some of the cast of Jimmy. Are you planning any behind-the-scenes crew other than Deborah Pratt? It would be fascinating to hear from some of the writers or directors. Keep up the great work, and I look forward to hearing more from the world of Sam and Al. Cheers, John. Thank you, John, and thank you. We appreciate that you appreciate what we do. (laughs) 
but for real. I mean, it means a lot that people are actually listening because Quantum Leap means a lot to me and now it means a lot to Heather. And uh, it's awesome to know that people will discover our podcast and listen to 30 hours of content that we have created so far and enjoy it and keep wanting more. We do plan to have as many interviews as we can get with production people and more actors, writers, producers, directors, anybody, everybody. Our crew is always on the lookout for people that we might be able to interview and we're always asking everybody. So uh, as they come in, we will interview them and put them up. And um, if you're listening and you did work on Quantum Leap, get in contact with us. We'd love to talk to you. We want to hear from everybody by the time this podcast is through. Yeah, because everyone has their own stories of what happened on the set or funny stories, I'm sure, with Scott or Dean or any of the characters. You know, we want to hear all of the stories. So we try to get interviews with anybody who will interview with us. And I can say that I can't say who we're talking to for future interviews. The the suspense is killing me. But uh, we're always working on something and we have a few lined up that are pretty big. So I'm excited. Thank you, everyone who left feedback on this episode. If you'd like to get in contact with us, there are many ways. You can go to quantumleappodcast.com. You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. We are on Twitter at quantumleappod. We're also on Instagram at quantumleappodcast. Or you can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. And we love to hear voicemails. So please call us at 707-847-6682. And leave us a voicemail. And you just might be on the show. Yeah, you probably will be on the show. (laughs) Most likely. Yeah. Unless I got to beep out too many words. Yeah. (laughs) But those would be fun to listen to anyway. They would be. (laughs) We have Hayden's segment coming up next. I always look forward to Hayden's segment. Got lots of Aussies in this episode. Hey, the more the better. Yeah. In this segment, Hayden talks more about A Portrait for Troyan. Portrait for Troyan is one of the most bizarre episodes of Quantum Leap due to the inclusion of supernatural elements. Despite this, though, it is a thoroughly entertaining episode. It does a great job as the first Quantum Leap mystery episode. There is enough going on which, when it happens, doesn't make any sense, but makes the viewer try to figure it out. The episode provides suitable red herrings and has clues scattered throughout the episode, which at the time seem innocuous, but end up fitting together like a jigsaw puzzle. This makes the viewer feel clever because they figured it out at the same time Sam did. There is, however, one loose end that wasn't tied up. That is, how did the painting that Troyan destroyed three years earlier by throwing in the lake end up back in Julian's study completely intact? Since Jimmy couldn't swim, he couldn't possibly have retrieved it. One possibility is that Ms. Stoltz retrieved it, but as a skeptic, I prefer logical explanations. Later on in the episode, Jimmy takes responsibility for adding Troyan dead at the bottom of the lake to her painting to toy with Troyan's emotions. This proves that Jimmy was every bit as good an artist as Troyan, so I choose to believe that it wasn't the original painting. Jimmy just recreated it to mess with Troyan's head, and it worked. The twist at the end of the episode about the true identity of Ms. Stoltz I have mixed feelings about. The entire episode seemed to be a skeptic's dream, giving the impression that even the most bizarre of circumstances have rational explanation. 
To then have all of that thrown out the window at the end felt like a slap in the face. In my opinion, if you're going to make a statement, then don't throw something at the audience at the last minute that completely refutes your statement. Having said that, though, as a character, Ms. Stoltz was written and portrayed in such a way that is intriguing, and there is a great deal to speculate over. As such, she's recently been the subject of debate at Owl's Place Forum. The first debate topic that came up when it was pointed out that even though Another Mother is the first episode where we get proof of somebody being able to see Sam and Al for who they really are, the four episodes prior to it, including a portrait for Troyan, actually imply that there are others who would be seeing Sam and Al in these episodes too. I mentioned Sadie Carter from So Help Me God in the last segment as an example, as she wasn't in her right mind. In Catch a Falling Star, John was so drunk that he commented Sam was an imposter and then repeated something else said about giving a terrific performance. It's said that people who are drunk always tell the complete truth, so it's possible that they would be seeing the complete truth as well. In A Portrait for Troyan, Timothy's sophisticated ghost hunting machinery picks up brainwave patterns and so it can channel Al through Sam, making it possible for others to hear him. But Ms. Stoltz also came up in discussion. In future episodes, it's revealed that people who are dead or near death can see and hear both Sam and Al. So by future canon, since she was dead, she should be seeing both Sam and Al. Upon seeing Tim or Sam, she immediately states that if he wanted to save her some trouble, he wouldn't be there. Was she talking about Timothy's methods, which everyone assumed would drive Troy insane? Or was she talking to Sam himself? possibly putting right her wrongs and ruining her plans. Speaking of which, if she had seen Timothy prior to him and Troyan going to the cemetery and Sam's leap in, what would she have thought if she seeing Sam when he returned? Would she have been thinking that walking around the cemetery had enabled Tim to be possessed by some other ghost? She probably didn't like the idea of another ghost in her house. She then informed Sam that she changed the arrangements for the collection of the newspaper clipping, stating that it was because strangers aren't welcome here. As she makes this statement, she gives a death stare in Al's direction, Al having just arrived, making Al believe, in my opinion, rightfully so, that she can see him. It's quite possible that she's seeing two strangers, both of whom would have been acting like spirits, and get her nose out of joint. Interestingly, she may have had another reason why she changed the arrangement. Mrs. Little, from the newspaper, had done a great deal of research about the Claridge family history and so knew all about Priscilla's past and so could have put two and two together and ruined Ms. Stoltz's plans, whatever they happened to be. What we know for sure about Ms. Stoltz is that she was the wife of Nathaniel Claridge, but she had an affair with her butler and was murdered by being drowned in the river as a revenge for her infidelity. Since then, she has haunted Claridge Manor, taking on a corporeal form when a housekeeper was needed. When her body was discovered and her identity revealed, she faded away. Apart from that, we don't learn very much about her. Personality-wise, she is melodramatic and rude to strangers, but shows a great deal of respect to Troyan, and is described by her as a good woman. As a ghost, Miss Stoltz has been tied to the earthly plane because she has unfinished business. The question is, what is her unfinished business? What are her intentions? Because she did so little during the episode, only changing arrangements for the collection of the newspaper clippings, being rude to Sam or Tim, and locking Sam in the study, it is very difficult to pinpoint what her actual intentions were. 
There are three schools of thought on what Ms. Stoltz's intentions were, and it depends on whether you took her to be an evil, a neutral, or a good character. If you believe she was evil, then you would probably think of her like a poltergeist, causing mayhem simply because she could. She certainly has motive. She can't have been happy about the events which led to the end of her life. So as revenge, she may have wanted to wipe out the entire Claridge line. This would mean that her act of locking Sam in Julian's study would have been an attempt to prevent him from saving Troyan, the last of the Claridge line, at least by name. Troyan married into the family. Some people even think she might have been sent to hell after she passed on and later been recruited by the devil to put wrong what once went right, taking on the pseudonym of Zoe. If you consider Ms. Stoltz neutral, then she was only tied to the earthly plane by the fact that she doesn't want to be forgotten after her death and wants her body found. Once it was found, she could rest. This meant that she locked the study not knowing Sam was there. Interestingly, it was immediately after Ms. Stoltz was able to move on that Sam left, implying that this was a second wrong that God or time or fate or whatever wanted Sam to put right. I, however, believe that Ms. Stoltz was a good spirit, there trying to look after her house and the current master or mistress. Let's not forget, Troyan said that Ms. Stoltz is a good woman. And apart from locking Sam in a study, which may or may not have been deliberate, she actually didn't do anything evil. She was certainly very respectful and very helpful to Troyan, at least. I believe that Ms. Stoltz took it upon herself to be a guardian angel to her descendants or to women like herself who married into the Claridge line. She might have even known that Troyan was facing the same demise she went through and taken it upon herself to try and prevent it. Let's remember, Ms. Stoltz never trusted Tim or Sam, so she probably thought he was dangerous and that he was the one putting Troyan in danger. This means that her locking Sam in the study would have been her trying to stop Sam from hurting Troyan. Unfortunately, this was entirely the wrong conclusion and put Troyan in even more danger. But it's the thought that counts. Then, once Troyan was safe with no more chance of being put in mortal danger and Priscilla's body found, her unfinished business was complete and she was able to move on. As I've said before, I have mixed feelings about bringing supernatural elements into Quantum Leap. The entire premise of the show is a scientist using quantum physics to build a time machine. It's entirely logical. Adding the supernatural throws all logic out the window. But I can forgive it in this case, because the character of Ms. Stoltz provides a great deal to talk about over the water cooler. I guess it's time to get back to my unfinished business. So do you think Miss Stoltz is a good guy, a bad guy? I think she's a dead guy. <laughs> a beautiful one. Yes. Um, I, I don't know. I think that her intentions didn't have much to do with the story. Like she was on her own... Side mission, maybe. Yeah, she was on her own deal. I still don't know why she locked Sam in the room. But other than that, she kind of just was on her own little mission. I don't. Oh, okay. I honestly don't know. I don't think we'll ever know. I agree with you that she was on her own. She was doing her own thing. She just happened to be a ghost hanging out there. That could be seen by everybody and she carried drinks. Totally weird. She made drinks. And held coats. And closed windows. And cleaned. If ghosts could clean, maybe we should be haunted. 
I might believe then. <laughs> what else do they have to do? It's true. Just clean the house. Heather, do you have some trivia for us? Probably. Did you know that Carolyn auditioned for the role of Dr. Beverly Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation? Really? That's crazy. I really like her, but I like Gates McFadden too, so... Well, I think you once you know someone as a character, I don't think they could ever be replaced. Yeah. I, she would have been a good doctor, though, I'm thinking. I actually got to meet Gates McFadden, and she was a wonderful person. Yeah, she's nice. I Very like nice. her. Very pretty. Beautiful in person. She was cool with our kid. That is so a thing. She actually asked if she could hold our baby at the time was, I think, nine months old. I think Rennie was about eight or nine months old when we took her to meet all these cool people. And for some reason, my brain decided whether I liked someone, if they interacted with my child or not. And uh, she held Rennie and let Rennie play with her necklace. And it was she was really, really cool. She was a cool person. And there were people that did not. And my <laughs> opinions of them changed. Okay. An electroencephalograph. Not even sure if that's a word <laughs> or if I'm saying it right. Would show Sam's brainwaves instead of ones of the leapy. Huh. Which is what happened because right. Al was there. Dean Stockwell did the whispering voice from the grave. Troyan, Heather, Jimmy. Well, that makes sense. That's why Al did such a great impression of Julian. Yeah, I guess that's why he sounded the same. How, now, how did Jimmy arrange that? Time travel? <laughs> How does a tape recorder with an antenna stuck on it do something? I don't know. I wasn't alive in the 70s. I don't know tape recorder technology, <laughs> apparently. I had one of those. A little continuity error. Uh, when Troyan is on the dock yelling at Jimmy back and forth, they weren't really yelling, but confronting each other, maybe, um, her hair goes from being behind her back to over her shoulders, behind her back, over her shoulders with each camera change. I did not see that. I didn't either. I missed that one. So six times and I didn't see it. So I need to watch it again. <laughs> I'm going to watch it again. And now I won't ever not be able to see it, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. It's cool that we find out these things. Usually I'm, I get those. Wow. I didn't see it. I must have been looking at something else. Thank you for the trivia. No piece of trivia is too small. Every bit of knowledge enhances our viewing experience. You sound so official. So are you excited for next week? Looks like there's going to be a lot of drinking involved. I hope not, because Sam leaps into Cam Wilson in a drag race. Imagine going back to 1961 and being 17 again. I'm a dork. Bring your wheels. It's the To the drive-in. Chocolate chicken and cherry coke? Sam returns to keep his sister... No, 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 no. That's marriage. not the right preview, remember? We've already seen that episode. The Kamikaze Kid, right? No. I was thinking the next episode is going to be really easy to do because I'm just going to say, go back and listen to the one we already did about it. Well, then how are we going to cover Animal Frat? Animal Frat. In the next episode, Sam leaps into Newt Wild Thing Wildton. He's a frat boy. Yeah, I got that impression from the title. Wild Thing, you throw the greatest parties of any fraternity. <laughs> Yeah, it looks like a great one from the look of these guys. I'm trapped in the body of a troglodyte. I don't want to graduate in it. I want to leap out of here as soon as I can. Well, don't worry. According to Ziggy, you're in no danger of graduating this year or next year. According to Ziggy, there's an 87.6% chance you're here to help Elizabeth Spokane. Well, tomorrow, that's Saturday, Elizabeth and her group are going to plant a bomb in the chemistry building. Bomb? It goes off... At 9 p.m., 
There wasn't supposed to be anybody in there. You're not just some big, hulking beer can. You're a lot smarter than that. And deceptively smart people need to be watched. That's why I'm going to be watching you, making sure that you don't get anywhere near Elizabeth. I mean, don't you see, if you use violence, you are as morally corrupt as the people you're fighting against. Sometimes you have to fight fire with fire. Elizabeth, violence is not going to stop this war. You know, I, I don't know if it's going to be a lighthearted one or a serious one. I know there might be some beer drinking involved. Probably. Okay, seriously, did you hear that? Hear what? Nothing. But seriously, you never mind. Okay, so uh, next time we talk about Animal Fret. Well, this episode has kind of given me the creeps, so I'm looking forward to a change of subject. Until next time, this is Albie. And I'm Heather. Albie. I heard something that time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. Go to quantumleappodcast.com and listen to new episodes. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Balisari Productions or Universal TV. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get behind-the-scenes information, exclusive content, and to be notified first when new episodes are available. To support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash quantumleappodcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, Baron Space Productions, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, John Buchanan, and Juan is the line producer. Researched by Juan. Contributors Hayden McQueenie and Jill Arroway. Voice talent provided by John Buchanan, Tony Fennerin, and Juan. The co-producer for the Quantum Leap Podcast is Hayden McQueenie. The Quantum Leap Universe and all it contains is property of Belisari Productions and Universal TV. No infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a barren space production. I'm so hot I can't even think. Take your top off. How would that help? I'm already wearing like nothing. It would help me. My phone just died. My phone just died. My phone just died. My phone just died. Hey, I just made up a song. My phone just died. My phone just died. My phone just died. My f- okay. I feel like the people in the courtroom. I know, right? <laughs> Those poor sons of b- who don't have air conditioning. Mm. We're still not sure, Miss Stoltz. Is... <laughs> We're still not even sure. Where Miss Stoltz's. I like had it in my head and it just won't. So, do you think Miss Stoltz is a. <laughs>